The scientific revolution starts now. We came down to the idea that the best thing to do might be to get both of your perspectives on why capitalism functions the way that it does, how it functions, first of all, as opposed to the way that it's yeah. ideally supposed to function, and then talk about why some of those myths persist about capitalism. And maybe if we're really lucky, we will work towards a picture of something better in the future, because that's what I'm personally obsessed with. So well, uh, we are, Obviously, there are different kinds of capitalism. And uh, we're in finance capitalism, and what Steve and I are talking about uh, really is uh, the degeneration of uh, the re reversal of industrial capitalism away from its evolution into socialism into finance capitalism and neo-feudalism and uh, global disaster. It's supposed yeah. to work. It's yeah. supposed to create a global disaster so 1% of the population owns everything else and can uh, take over the 99%. Isn't that how it's supposed to work? Yeah, if you're one of the 1%. So who's supposed to work so, for whom? Let's unpack that history a little bit, though, uh, uh, from the grand ideal have to... We started, have, have we started? We, yeah, we started recording at the very beginning, and then, you know, we'll probably ax off the beginning until we get rolling exactly, but I, I honestly think we can just launch into it. I'd like to get both of your perspectives on how these events unfolded to the place that we're at. So before we get to the, the, the events that have unfolded, let's make sure that... Oh, we, we need to do that. Oh, we do claps. need to do an I'm alignment. Sorry. We have clap. one more technical okay. thing. All we right, need to that's do. a good call. Okay, so I'm going to clap here, and then uh, we use this to align the audio. So if each of you, in turn, we can maybe yeah. start with Michael. If you could say the uh, say something with a P, like uh, Karl Popper, perhaps. Karl Popper. Got okay. it. And then Steve. Uh, Peter pick pe uh, a peck of pickled peckers. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Nice. All right. Okay. I think that's all. Forget we really that explosiveness. That I'll go for Polanyi. Okay. So <laughs> no, not Popper. I want to I want us to start with making sure that everyone is on the same page for what we're talking about. Yeah. And so when we talk when we say that capitalism is broken or it's not working, do both of you have the same vision for what that means? Or do you have slightly different perspectives or totally different perspectives on how it's like what that word means? It's such a huge, powerful word in this discussion. We should probably define it mm -hmm. as rigorously as possible. Well, first of all, that's the wrong question. Working for whom? It's working very good if you're uh, one of the 1%. It's working very badly uh, if you're one of the 99%, or if you're living in a part of the uh, world that uh, uh, rising sea levels is going to make uncomfortable, uh, or if you're a renter and not a homeowner, uh, or if you're a debtor and not a creditor. So it's uh, uh, working for whom is the first question. What is it? What is capitalism? I know this is a very elementary question, but I think it's really important that we define that term up front. There, uh, the word capitalism was coined in the early 20th century uh, uh, by uh, the German. I'm always blocking out his name right now. Uh, it's Schumpeter. Uh, no. no. No, who wrote uh, uh, the bourgeois, uh, many, I'm blocking it all out. Uh, at any rate, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll think it uh, what most people think of as capitalism is what Marx wrote about 
describing industrial capitalism, where uh, uh, the distinguishing feature is wage labor. Industrialists will hire labor to produce a good to sell at a profit. Uh, and the idea is for capitalists in one country to undersell those of other countries and conti continually to cut costs uh, so that uh, they can undersell their rivals. Uh, modern capital finance capitalism is the opposite. Finance capitalism, Pentagon capitalism aims to maximize the cost of production. Uh, in Pentagon capitalism, uh, you're paid an automatic uh, 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 10% or similar proportion of whatever you spend money on. So the objective of Pentagon capitalism is instead of making a $20 toilet seat, you make the uh, famous $350 toilet seat because then you get a $35 10% uh, commission. Uh, is that capitalism? Uh, the kind of capitalism we have today, if you want to say is capitalism what we now have, is finance capitalism. And that's the antithesis of uh, uh, industrial capitalism. Uh, industrial capitalism sought to cut costs. And how do you do it? You do it by having government play a rising role. And uh, the government uh, will uh, make sure that costs are not increased by monopolies, uh, because you'll uh, any natural monopoly uh, is going to be taken into uh, the public domain. Communications, healthcare, education, transportation, all of these were uh, developed by government and supplied to the private sector at a discount or even freely so that uh, the wage earners uh, who were hired by the employers didn't have to spend their wages on health care or education. And uh, that enabled uh, American wages and German wages, uh, not to include all of these uh, extra costs uh, because of government. Uh, the ideal of industrial capitalism was revolutionary. It was to get rid of the rent seekers, to get rid of economic rent as unearned income, to get rid of the landlord class by taxing away land rent, to get rid of the monopolists by putting monopolies in the public domain, or at least regulating them. Well, uh, what happened was the rent seekers fought back and gave us modern economics. Uh, and the modern economics uh, said uh, that uh, government plays no uh, major economic role. Uh, the one thing it uh, picked up from industrial capitalism was say, uh, any problem, uh, there's a solution to. The solution to every single problem is one of two things. One, lower the wages of labor and its living standards, Two, get rid of government and let uh, the private market uh, solve everything, as long as the market is controlled by the financial interests. And the ideal of finance capitalism is to replace economic uh, planning away from the government towards the financial centers and to maximize economic rent. Uh, and by the end of the 19th century, you had the modern uh, economic saying uh, markets are uh, any uh, markets are ideal uh, the way they are. Any uh, attempt to change the natural market is an interference with the market. Uh, and the interference they meant was they didn't want uh, socialism to develop. They didn't want economic regulation to develop. They didn't want anti-monopoly regulation to develop. Uh, they uh, essentially wanted to create 
a, uh, a, a, an economy run by the financial sector, making money by creating economic rent opportunities and deindustrializing. It's uh, the uh, the objective of finance capitalism is to make money quickly with the least effort possible, and uh, that does not mean you invest in a factory and develop markets. You take over a factory uh, or a, a corporation, break it up, uh, deindustrialize, uh, turn the uh, uh, office buildings or factories into gentrified housing, <clears throat> and uh, you you remove. All of the taxes on economic rent, on land rent, on monopoly rent, and uh, essentially you create an economy that is just uh, over overblown and in many ways is very much like the feudal economies, uh, special interests, inherited uh, rights, uh, and the economy polarizes. And it polarizes primarily by debt, uh, and so the, the this industrial, this post-industrial capitalism has sort of created a new idea of economics as its advertising uh, a public relations effort. And uh, this uh, uh, neoclassical anti-government economics says uh, any, that uh, the ideal of any economy is to make money quickly as it is me measured in financial form. And what we're seeing today in the United States is a huge upsweep in the financial wealth of the 1% of the population, while the 99% of the population is running into debt. So if you uh, you read the newspapers in the United States these days, uh, it's all about why don't Americans realize what a wonderful thing that President Biden has done? The economy is doing wonderfully. Uh, why do people say it's not doing wonderfully? Why are they so unhappy with the economy? Well, the reason is it depends on who is the economy that you're talking about? Are you talking about the economy for the 1% or the economy for the 99%? And the 1% are making money so rapidly at the expense of the 99% that overall wealth is actually going up. Uh, and so people think that the economy is doing good, but it's a very polarized, concentrated uh, economy, just the opposite of uh, what industrial capitalism uh, aimed at. Steve, do you have a different perspective on the history? Well, I, I want to just try, I, I could see you were trying to absorb what Michael was saying there. And it's, it's amazing to which a narrative will set how we think about a system. And Michael's narrative, you know, it, I have much agreement with what Michael was saying. Uh, uh, there are elements I, I disagree with moderately, but the, the overall narrative Michael is making is, you know, I think quite an accurate description of how capitalism as it was originally uh, seen, which was the industrial capitalism, has been distorted into financial capitalism. And that has worked out very well for those who own the financial assets uh, and extremely badly for those who work and to some extent extremely badly for those who manufacture as well. So you, you do have that. I think Michael's narrative is accurate, in other words. But I would also come back and say, well, what's what's the original distinction of capitalism from social from from uh, feudalism or from socialism and that starts off with the private ownership of the means of production now again we michael and other would agree on that one um uh, but what you get uh, out of that is in a, in a modern society there's no such thing as a perfectly private 
system. Okay? Never, never existed. Uh, there's always been a mix of private and public. And the question under capitalism, what would work better? And if you ask what would better in general, what Michael was talking about where uh, the government provides health, education, welfare, the, 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 the infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, that means that workers aren't paying, as he said, aren't paying uh, for the cost of tra transportation to make a profit for the owner of transportation. They're paying a lower cost. They're getting free education, uh, so the capitalists don't need to educate them, et cetera, et cetera. And what you get, therefore, is a higher profit for those manufacturers. But financial capital uh, is very much based on neoclassical economic thinking. It's, it made neoclassical economics didn't intend to be a defence for financial capital, but that's what's worked out. And when they say deregulate, they mean remove controls on the finance sector. So, you know, and the, therefore, you know, I very much agree with Michael's perspective overall. But I think we have to then say, well, you know, let's look at the systemic level, feudalism versus capitalism, capitalism versus socialism, and the private ownership of the means of production uh, is an essential part of that. What you get, and this is in Michael's narrative as well, is a large part of what is done by the power, powers that be in, in capitalism makes it work less well than if they hadn't buggerized around with the system in the first place. And if you look back and see what was the period where Let's use America as our reference point. American American population was happiest, and I'd say it's the happy days period, the 50s and 60s, which, you know, the happy days show captured that. And you could have a single male worker most of the time supporting a large family and having plenty of leisure time, relatively. They didn't have the, you know, they didn't have fancy things like this to talk on conversations across the internet, et cetera, et cetera. The technological level is obviously lower. But you could support a family and have a reasonable family life uh, and be working in an industrial uh, setting as well, have pride in what you were doing as a worker, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's not America today. Okay? And, and so a lot of the sense of misery people get, even though the, you will get neoclassical economists in particular saying, oh, they're so much better off than they were back then because look at the cars they drive, you know. Uh, well, that's technological change. And, 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 and that side of capitalism is one worth discussing, that that's the, the main distinguishing feature in one sense between a feudal period and a capitalist. You have a greater rate of technological development during capitalism and to some extent that benefits everybody. But you've had a breakdown Capitalists have under, not the capitalists, financial capital has undermined what made capitalism great for the period that it was. And that's a large part of the, of Michael's, um, argument. And I've seen the data on that too. If you look at the level of private sector debt, you go, uh, the booms and busts of private debt are what drive the apparent wealth and the final poverty of capitalism. And we are now in the period of the highest level of private debt. In America's history, and every time we get a high level of private debt like that, it's you know the old joke about if you owe the bank a hundred dollars, you have a problem. If you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank has a problem. <laughs> well, we've ended up where the bank dominates because we owe that a billion, a trillion dollars, and the the dominance of the finance sector, I think, is what's eroded the good side of capitalism. And that has been supported by conventional economic theory, even though they claim, of course, that they're not doing that. 
Okay, now based on what Steve has said, I can see the question that should have been asked. Uh, what direction is capitalism going in? Yeah. And we could have said, what direction was industrial capitalism going in? Everybody in the 19th century said, it's going towards socialism. There were many kinds of socialism. And the whole argument in the last decade of the 19th century was, what kind of socialism are we going to have? It's obvious that instead of having a post-feudal ruling class, a post-feudal landlord class to collect rent, a post-feudal monopoly class, uh, and a, a predatory banking class, we're going to have government playing uh, uh, an increasing role, uh, including uh, money creation and control of the credit system. So that was going towards socialism. There was a counter-revolution, and that's the revolution that we've been having for the last century towards uh, neoclassical, uh, neoliberal economics, and that's finance capitalism. And that's going in the direction that uh, precisely what Steve just pointed out. What is really growing under finance capitalism is finance, is debt. And the debt of uh, uh, the population uh, as a whole is credit on the opposite side of the balance sheet. So while people now are talking about uh, the growth of debt uh, and the and uh, the debt problem, the debt problem it has a twin on the other side of the balance sheet that grows proportionally. The debts of uh, the uh, one group are the assets of another. So when uh, Steve and I have both written about how uh, the modern economic picture ignores debt and money because they say we owe the debt to ourselves. But who's the we and who's the ourselves? The debt that we owe or the debt, the 99% to ourselves, the 1%. So uh, we're really getting a narrative by uh, uh, the 1%, and it's uh, very largely a fictitious uh, Orwellian doublespeak uh, or, uh, narrative. Was, was this kind of transition away from the happy days of the 50s and 60s inevitable because there was more money in the world and there was a greater need to put it somewhere where it would continue to accrue what, no. accrue value? That, that's the kind of question an economist would ask. Uh, you, you have, you <laughs> we have apologize to, for that comment. Yeah. <laughs> we, we I'm learning. I've talked to you guys for long enough. Every economic tendency politicizes itself. And the problem is that uh, as uh, the, uh, the financial class gets richer, what does it do? It takes over government. Uh, and it uh, takes over policymaking, uh, especially uh, in the United States. You privatized the election process by the Citizens United ruling, where uh, the the, uh, the nomination of political candidates is based on who can raise the most money from the donors. Uh, and so the head of uh, every congressional committee, uh, whether it's a military or financing, uh, the heads of the financial committee uh, and the members are all received uh, donations from the banks and the financial classes. The heads of the military committees all uh, get uh, uh, subsidy by the military-industrial complex. So this is the magic of the marketplace is political as well as just uh, economic. That's what's changed things. The law has changed. The application of the law has changed. Uh, the, uh, the, ref uh, the culmination of finance capitalism, uh, it peaked with uh, President Obama, uh, who uh, you had the largest bank fraud in American history, and not a single uh, bankster was sent to jail because the banksters 
nominate the judges. The banksters nominate the lawmakers. So you you have uh, economics is not simply the growth of debt or the growth of income. It's a mode of the economic uh, power translates itself into political policy, regulation, and uh, who staffs the regulators. It seems like the political aspects feed back upon the financial structures as well with things like you see the rise of ESGs uh, being priced into corporate decision making. Is there a feedback loop at play there as well, where politics start to drive some of the financial decisions? Oh, finance drives everything. I mean, um, we know the expression of the military-industrial complex, and that was actually coined by General Dwight D. Eisenhower, President General Dwight D. Eisenhower, pretty much in his last day in office. And he, as a general, could certainly see the not just from the point of view of the president, but having been in the military himself, the extent to which the industrial complex generated the strength of the military sector and that ran American politics. What we have today, I think I call the financial political complex. The financial sector is the only part of the economy that has the ear of politicians. Politicians are persuaded by very self-serving arguments, which you know, look convincing, but you, you, you cut beneath them and they're self-serving. And, and all the reforms, so-called, are about liberating finance. I, I just want to check, can I actually share my screen with you? Because I want to show some data, because most people have got no awareness of the level of private debt in America. Let's and they, try. Hold on. Yeah, Let me, uh, yeah. hold on. I have to change, I, I have really to change a couple of things. Pardon the interruption, dear listeners, but we must ask you for a favor. If you like what the Demystify Psy podcast does, consider coming over to our Patreon. It is at patreon.com slash demystifypsy, and there you can contribute a couple dollars a month to help us keep the ship running and allow us to continue our investigations into the most interesting ideas that are out there about nature, humans, history, the future, technology, economics, all of the things that we do on the podcast. In return for your donation, you get both of our episodes for the week early, you get to join our fantastic patron chat that meets weekly on Sunday mornings to talk about everything that is interesting in the world and the direction that the podcast should take. And you get to have the satisfaction of contributing to something that you think is important in the world. If you can't contribute right now, that is totally fine. We understand. I have been in that boat for many, many years. But what you can do without spending a single penny is come to our Discord, come to our Facebook, come to our Twitter, come to our Instagram, like, comment, and subscribe, because by helping us with the algorithm, you help us grow in a really super passive way. And if you've already joined the patron, just do all that other stuff too. For now, back to the conversation. You can see the top graph is the ratio of private debt to GDP in America from 1947 to today. Okay, And it starts at about 50% of GDP back at the end of the Second World War. And then it just explodes cyclically, but explodes from 50% to 170%. And the financial crisis in 2007, 2008 occurred because the rate of growth of that debt turned from positive to negative. It went from a, a Ponzi scheme, the whole subprime thing, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, that fell over because people could miss a payment. Suddenly, they go bankrupt and the, and the, and the growth of debt goes the opposite way and drives house prices in the opposite direction. And you can see what I've done down here is I've taken the change in debt. So the, this is the level of debt, which is the dollars you know, we owe. That's currently running at about $40 trillion, I think, in America, current level. This is the annual change in debt, and that's credit. Okay? The dollars per year that, you, that the, either you borrow or the financial sector encourages you to take on as debt. And that peaked at over 15% of GDP just before the crisis began. It went down to minus 5. Now, that's repeating it. 
his part of history that's been a part of America right back to the 1830s. You had the Great Depression, which was a more extreme version of this, and the Panic of 1837, which was more extreme again. But the level of debt's never been as high as it is this time round. And that's why we say we live in a financialized economy, and the numbers scream it. Now, what you get out of mainstream economic theory, and this is one of the, this is the way in which Michael and I first bonded, because we approached the same issue from different directions. And we were about the only people in non-orthodox economics arguing the level of private debt mattered and credit was driving the economy. And I remember, Michael, you remember this conversation, I'm sure. I stayed in a hotel in, in, in uh, New York and you came to visit me and we were raving away in my hotel room. And you finally said to me, what is aggregate demand? And I answered, now technically I'm slightly wrong here. I've since improved the argument. I answered, it's GDP plus change in debt. And you said, why can't other people see that? And it is, in fact, now what it is, is credit is part of aggregate demand and aggregate income. And I've proven that analytically as well. Uh, as, so we now get the correct answer. If you leave credit out of your analysis of aggregate demand and aggregate income, you are not meddling capitalism. And mainstream economics has left it out all the way through and argues you don't need to look at it. Now, that's the reason I've done this bottom chart here, because the red line is the level of credit as a percentage of GDP mapped on the left-hand side of, of the, the chart. And the dotted line is the unemployment rate. Now, and that you can see one goes up, the other goes down. Rising mm -hmm. credit gives you falling unemployment and vice versa. And the correlation between 1990 and 2015, which is the height of both the, in, the bubble the burst and then the aftermath, the correlation coefficient is, is, is greater than minus 0.9. Okay. R squared is about 0.83. And so, what, and, and credit in this chart is just, is personal debt that's being carried by people? No. Or it's Mortgage debt. Corporation. Oh, yeah. Every, 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 everything. It's, it's, it's household debt and corporate debt okay? of the, of the non-financial sector to the banks, okay? Uh, so uh, it's it's even worse when you look at internal financial sector debt. The level is actually higher, but the data is badly defined. I just gave up on trying to include that data in my analysis. But this is how indebted the real economy, so, so to speak, households and firms, are to the financial sector. And because we've let the debt get this high, we've got, you know, it's trebled, more than trebled. So the happy days were when debt was kept under control. And if you look at all the controls that came in after the Great Depression and the Second World War, they were to limit the capacity of the finance sector to do what they've been allowed to do in the in the in the fifties, sixties, and out through to today. So we we want to tame financial capitalism because if you want to have decent capitalism, you want industrial capitalism, not the finance sector going crazy. And I'll just uh, I'll stop my sharing now. But that's. Uh, you know, we, we, it isn't just words, in other words, okay? We're both good talkers, Michael better than me. We're both no. good talkers. We're, <laughs> we're, a, good, we're a good pair. Uh, but, 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 but we're best data. when we talk to each other and we bounce ideas yeah. off each other. Yeah. And, and the, the data screamingly supports us. I, when I yes. was teaching it, before I met Michael, I was working over in, in the University of Western Sydney in, in, in Australia. And I would, was first starting to look at this information. And I would say to my students, I wouldn't dare make up the numbers that I actually find in the statistics if I was trying to make the case that I believe. In other words, the data is, is overwhelmingly stronger than I would dare to pretend it was if I didn't actually know the data. And so Michael and I were really led, led the battle in non-orthodox economics that we've got to focus upon financial capital, level of private debt and its effects. 
And it, it, they've caught up with us to some degree, but, you know, we definitely led the battle on that, on that front. And it means that, you know, we understand that capitalism, as you have now, is a perverted version of what it started as and what it should have stayed as. And Marx actually put it beautifully. Uh, this is in, uh, I think it's in the third volume of Capital. I said, talk about centralization. The um, the banks and the moneylenders and the parasites that surround them occasionally get the capacity to uh, dominate the industrial capitalism. And this gang knows nothing about production and should have nothing to do with it. And he called them the roving cavaliers of credit. And that that is what we've let take over. And Marx was right in that. He, if you'd had Marx managing capitalism, we would never have got the garbage we've got now. He had a naive vision of what socialism would be, but he would have kept the financial sector under control. And that's what we need to do to have a decent version of capitalism. It occurs to me that there's this sort of false dichotomy set up in most people's minds, which regards the division between capitalism and socialism. But what we're talking about is the nuances mm. of government restraints on the different uh, industrial and financial sectors. Like there's a, there's a more nuanced dichotomy that should be at the center of people's attentions. Well, the answer yeah. is yes. And uh, Steve points out that he and I are almost the only people that continue to talk not only about debt, but the fact that the economy cannot recover until you cancel the debt. Well, the reason uh, that uh, economists don't uh, want to talk about debt if they're re representing the status quo is uh, uh, the old phrase, the devil wins at the point that the uh, people believe he doesn't exist. The financial sector wins at the point where people think debt doesn't matter, debt problems don't exist, don't regulate it, there's nothing to see here, folks, uh, keep on moving. Uh, what I should have said is that in, uh, at the very beginning is that uh, industrial capitalism aims at creating profits, and it creates profits by employing labor to sell at a profit, and making profits means uh, minimizing economic rent and minimizing uh, uh, predatory finance. Finance capitalism doesn't look for profits. That's why we're deindustrializing. It looks at economic rent seeking and financial gains. So the objective of these two forms of capitalism are diametrically opposite. And if you look at where they're going, uh, th this this uh, really is the problem. Are we going to have a society based on uh, uh, profits and wages and rising feedback uh, between rising wages, higher productivity, and higher uh, capital investment? Or are we going to have uh, the finance capitalism just looking at uh, how to get a free lunch at the economy's expense? I don't know if you saw and this World Economic yeah, yeah. Forum presentation where uh, at the end of it, they made this point that in the future, you will own nothing and be happy. And it's really <laughs> stuck with me because it feels like there is a massive force that's that's kind of pressing on the lever arm of of society to push people towards dematerializing their own lives 
where well, I guess that's the Obama doctrine. Uh, when he came, uh, he after the 2008 crisis, he said we're going to start with nobody owning anything by evicting 10 million American families that have been fraudulently uh, uh, lo- loaded down with junk mortgages. Let's uh, let's uh, first of all reduce uh, owner land uh, home ownership by uh, the uh, 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 black and Hispanic population. Let's uh, slash home ownership, and you've had since the Obama uh, takeover, uh, a financial takeover, a plunge of 10 percentage points in America's home ownership rate. Yes, we're moving towards uh, the polarization moves towards uh, nobody will own anything, meaning nobody except the 1% will own anything and they'll own this, everything. This, this, but, but this, what, what we're caught up in as well is a battle between reality and ideology. And ideology is neoclassical economic theory and people who swallow its arguments all the way through. And if you go back to the 70s and 80s, that was when you had the real shift from a a Keynesian understanding, which is like like a bastardized version of a Marxian understanding, um, which at least appreciated classes exist and at least appreciated you wanted to get income to the working class because the working class will spend faster than the rich do. So if you actually distribute money to the working class, it ends up going to the capitalist anyway, ultimately. Uh, and you get, and, and this is actually what's called Koleski's profit equation that says that if you uh, all you increase is government spending ends up in the pockets of capitalists because you give it to workers, they'll spend it and it ends up in Walmart, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the thing is, if you do that, that's better than giving it to the capitalists directly or the certainly financial capital. They spend much more slowly. So what you get out of it is even though you know it ends up being something which capitalists profit from, uh, you get a better uh, level of economic activity, a larger level of economic activity if it goes through the workers in the first place. Workers have to spend the money they've got very rapidly. Capitalists and bankers spend it very slowly even though they've got far more money. So what's happened is a switch to the money going to the workers, which gave us the buoyant economy of the 50s and 60s, the, the happy days capitalism, uh, where it goes to the ultra-wealthy now. And, you know, they buy, you know, they used to buy Lamborghinis, now they buy top-level um, Teslas. Um, they've got yachts everywhere. They compete over the size of the yachts they've got. Um, it, it's a much, much more, as again, Mark, Michael said earlier, a feudal-type economy we've generated. And the point I want to make, I'm going to share my screen again, by the way. This is a very heavy-looking piece of data here. But one of the things which was sold uh, to get a change like we got out of Thatcher and, and, and uh, Reagan, You've got to have something which gets the popular support so you get you know, people voting for it. Part of that comes out of the Murdochs of the world pushing their views and so on. But what they were saying is get rid of trade unions, get rid of government interference, get rid of you know, uh, socialised medicine and socialised education. And what we're going to get is a booming economy that grows much faster and even though you won't have a welfare state holding your hand or putting a net beneath you, you're going to have a faster rate of growth and you'll be wealthier. Okay? So what that tells you is their argument was the economy would grow faster if we move from the type of capitalism Michael was talking about earlier where the government covered a lot of those costs to one where everything is privatised. That was supposed to increase the rate of economic growth. Now, I, I could show a screen. Was it worth trying again? Yeah, you should be good to go now. Mm-hmm. I think we got it. Okay, give it a try. Okay, just hang on a second. So I share the same screen. This is my software package Ravel, by the way, Michael. Now, there are too many, a lot of the charts on this one, but I want to just zoom in to show you the growth ah, rate. Makes it all okay. clear. 
Okay. <laughs> so what you can see, this is for America, and the growth rate from 1945 to 1975 was 3.2, roughly 3.25 percent, three and a quarter percent per annum real economic growth. From 75 on, it's been 1.9 percent. Okay. That's virtually halving the rate of growth, which of course means that the level of economic activity now after many, many years is far lower than it would have been if we continued with the old so-called inefficient Keynesian system. So they've sold us a pup. We've bought the pup. And the trouble is nobody um, realises, I'll see if I could, I've got a few bugs with the software, but I'll try again to another country here. Let's try Japan, for example, and see if I can update the data. While while you're while you're working that out, if, I wonder. If it, yeah. So if the switch to financial capital has been this artificial method by which to grow GDP by seeking rent from, you know, the working class, why doesn't the growth of GDP reflect that calculation? Like, why does why does it slow down? It's not a growth of GDP. It's a growth of ownership of capital ownership of resources and the concentration of wealth. So we've actually grown more slowly. If you gave the money to the workers and they were spending it in a happy days form, there'd be a high rate of economic growth. That's what they told us they'd get. They didn't get the high rate of growth. We're now slumping, but they're much, much wealthier and we're all complaining about it and we're right and they're wrong. Michael. Well, two things about that. When uh, President Biden gave um, uh, money for the COVID uh, people, I guess that was President Trump who did that, uh, the workers used their money to pay down their credit card debt. Uh, because what's growing is debt. Uh, you've talked about the growth of GDP, and what's happened is that finance capitalism transforms the concept of GDP. It erases the distinction between what is a product and what is overhead. For instance, uh, uh, right now in America, uh, as a result of this growing debt, arrears and foreclosures are uh, increasing for housing, for automobiles and for credit card debt, uh, defaults of loans are rising. Now, what happens when you default on a credit card loan? Your interest rate goes up from 19% a year to about 30% a year. Uh, and uh, this, uh, uh, the credit card companies now make more money in penalties than they make in interest. And uh, what they make in penalties is recorded in the GDP is providing financial services. So uh, the more you uh, lose your money, you lose your house, uh, you pay uh, higher uh, financial rates, this is considered economic growth growth, not overhead. Uh, and uh, all of the money, the uh, uh, the high uh, wages that uh, CEOs pay themselves, uh, the monopoly prices that are charged uh, for uh, uh, Amazon and for the other companies uh, under uh, uh, federal prosecution right now for being monopolies, all of this is economic growth. What is growing is the financial tumor not the economy as a whole, not the industrial ca uh, economy. Again, that's why the U.S. economy is deindustrializing, and they call that economic growth because uh, the uh, the financial sector is making a fortune off deindustrialization. And this this is actually a problem with how the uh, the, the flow of funds tables were defined way back in the in the forties. It was Copeland who defined them, a, a statistician. Michael and I both have a lot of respect for. But the mistake he made was he he decided to record you know, if it's industrial capitalism you can record the number of cars going out the factory door times the price. Okay, uh, you, you get a physical measure of the 
of the profit, you've got the capital, you purchase the machinery, you've got all these prices and it's all solid and real. But how do you include the finance sector? And you decided simply to call the contribution of the finance sector GDP the sum of the finance sector, all the wages that are paid, all the all the bonuses, all the profits that are that are made. So if you pay you double the pay of a CEO, you increase GDP. Now that's wrong. We should have said, let's look at it and see. You know, one of my students way, way back at my university, Western Sydney days, put it beautifully, said, is finance a profit center or a cost? And the answer is it's cost of doing business. It's not a profit center. We've made the mistake of seeing it as being creative. And therefore, and that's also, unfortunately, the way the Copeland defined those accounts. Rather than having a negative for the financial sector, which would have made sense, he made it a positive, as if it adds to profit adds to GDP. And what has happened, of course, it's grown enormously. So the finance sector has gone from something of the order of, uh, I, I don't have the exact numbers, but say like about 5% of GDP to 15% of GDP. And we've counted that as growth. But as Michael said, it's not a growth, it's a tumour. Past a certain level, you do need finance to enable the, you know, all the transactions we do on a daily basis. You, you need borrowed money if you're going to buy a large item like a house or a car, et cetera, et cetera. It does make sense to have a certain level of financial debt in a capitalist economy, but not three times what it was in the 50s. And, that's and this financial bias is the denial that there is any such thing as economic rent. Post-industrial yeah. capitalism theory says everybody earns whatever income they get. So, as yeah. I think I said it on the earlier broadcast on our show, uh, when the head of Goldman Sachs says, uh, our partners are the most productive workers in the American economy, look at how much our partners are paid as we uh, rob companies, uh, pull them apart, uh, create international crimes by stealing Malaysia's uh, foreign uh, money, uh, the most money is to be made in crime, we know that, and we're the best criminals there are, uh, financial uh, uh, criminals, which is why why they were prosecuted. Well, uh, the, 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 if you say that the, everybody earns what they get, no matter how they earn it, there's no such thing as unearned income, no economic rent, then you've, fought, uh, you've uh, negated the entire 19th century political economy. The, all of the value and price theory of the 19th century that was the essence of industrial capitalism was to distinguish earned from unearned income so that they could free uh, capitalism from the landlord class, from the monopolies, and from the predatory bankers. And the counter-revolution that began a century ago, and in which we are still living, denies this distinction so that, uh, again, the devil has made himself invisible. What, this, if you look back at Ricardo, uh, because people would know Ricardo for the theory of comparative advantage. Now, that was one of the, I call it the shell and pea trick, because he managed to deceive everybody. Uh, and economists, that's been the one the one horse, the one trick pony that economists, economics have been since is using the idea of specialization. But what his real purpose for putting that argument forward was that he argued that workers get the means of subsistence. Capitalists, you want you want capitalists to get a profit because capitalists will invest. And the, if you want to have a, 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 long, a longer period of growth before what he saw as being a stationary state, in the future, then you want to get as much money into the hands of the capitalists so that they'll invest and as little as possible into the landlords. So when you, if you read him carefully, he says, my purpose in this book has been to show, S-H-E-W, to show that uh, wherever uh, rents go down, profits go up effectively. I haven't got the quote right there. But what he's saying, if you can reduce the amount that goes to rent, 
you'll get a higher rate of growth and you'll have a, a longer period of prosperity before the stationary state. So he was anti-landlord, which is hilarious because he actually was a landlord. But nonetheless, that was the, the flavour of Smith. It was the flavour of Ricardo, certainly Marx. And the whole idea was to minimise rentier behaviour. And if you look back and see what the feudal system was, that was the ultimate of rentier behaviour. So that's where the anti-feudal pro-capitalist elements exist in all the classical school. And the neoclassicals um, have this fantasy view of capitalism to begin with, but they're the ones who threw away the distinction. And then that, of course, very much suited the wealthy. And so I, I've... Michael, you probably know a lot more about this than I do, but the takeover of economics in the 1870s from the classical school to the neoclassical school, where virtually in about a decade, you went from the classical school being the dominance and the neoclassicals being the undergrowth to all the professors of economics being a neoclassical. And, well, it was and largely that, in yeah the 1890s. Uh, John Bates Clark yeah. in America and uh, similar uh, people, uh, the Austrians abroad. Uh, it was a whole counter counter revolution. Uh, that's basically yeah. uh, what you had. Yeah, and that and that meant we went from a, gen a generally fairly realistic picture of capitalism under the classical school of economic thought, and then one that ends up with the type of capitalism we had in the 50s and 60s which is largely an accident, more than deliberate, uh, to the financial capital side. And the neoclassical economic theory justifies all that by saying that the ludicrous pay being paid to uh, people managing financial uh, organisations is because they have a high marginal product. And well, that's since, capitalism yeah. meritocracy, which is bullshit. Well, since Steve mentioned uh, Ricardo, uh, when... Uh our generation uh, went to school. They still taught the history of economic thought. That mm -hmm. is now stripped away from the curriculum. The one thing they don't teach is that there ever was a theory of economic rent. They don't talk about uh, Ricardo or the whole 19th century. Uh, they've replaced the history of economic thought uh, with Mathematics, uh, as if you uh, can just math mathematize the existing statistics that have all been, as Steve pointed out, restructured so as to deny that there's any distinction between the financial economy and real industry. So uh, you you uh, you have economists being turned out uh, that are very smart mathematically, but they don't know what to be smart about mm -hmm. because they've never been exposed to the idea that there is such a thing as economic rent, unearned income, and uh, debt crises. So I want to talk about the way that debt... Mathematics. <laughs> Ooh, Steve, what was yep. that? Sorry. Oh, sorry. I wouldn't call them smart. Uh, uh, clever. Uh, uh, what, what, what shall we say? Oh, idiot savants. Uh, numerous. Yeah, they're, they're very. The they're very that's numerous. The word. <laughs> Quantitatively reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> Quantitatively able. So, yeah, so as if Robert McNamara was running the economy, <laughs> like he ran the war. I want to understand better why debt is so stifling. Because in the back of my mind, I'm kind of like, well, why can't it just continue to go on eternally? Like, why can't we just have debt? You're talking like about national debt? National mm -hmm. debt, personal debt, economic debt. Just like, why can't it just perpetually grow and grow and grow? And if everybody's debt is growing and everybody's kind of looking at it and is like, well, it just that's just that's just a thing that grows. It's fine. It's growing faster than everything else. This is the problem. If debt grew at the same rate of GDP, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Okay? And government debt is different. That's 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 a, a point worth elaborating on 
shortly. But private debt, if private debt was growing as fast as GDP, it would be to the same ratio. And therefore, you'd be right. It could continue growing. What we're talking about, the ratio has grown dramatically. And then what's happened, it's gone from being a servant of capitalism to a parasite of capitalism. And it's slowed down the capacity of the, of the industrial capitalism to develop new products. And like the, the first example we ever saw of that was actually Japan. Because if you go back to the, uh, the post-war period for Japan, you had the enormous, you know, Japanese miracle, as they call it, uh, dramatic growth in the economy. And then between 1980 and 1990, they had what they called, the, they literally called it the bubble economy, where people were speculating on the value of houses in, in Tokyo so that the imperial palace, which I think has got an area of about 10, 10 square kilometres, roughly, uh, maybe less than that, was worth more than California. Hmm. You, you had the net Nikkei reach almost 40,000 points on the 31st of December, 1989. It's since fell to about 7,000 points. But this financial bubble took over. Now, up until that point, up to 1990, you would see movies like, uh, what was they called, the, the, this, the Rising Sun? A classic, it was Denzel Washington, was it? Or a, a, a very classic movie about Japan taking over everything. And we had Walkmans, et cetera, et cetera. What happened? <clears throat> well, Japanese corporations tended to operate as collective so rather than being equity finance, they were largely debt finance. But there was a there was a symbiotic relationship, but also independent at the same time. Well, those Japanese corporations had so much debt that they've spent most of the period since 1990 paying off that debt. And the industrial development, the technological development that we associated with Japan died in the ass. And so that's that that's what got rid of them. And we who, had that. Who did they owe their debt Japan. to? Pardon? Oh, the Japanese corporate, the Japanese corporation owed it to Japanese banks. The level of the level of um, private private debt in Japan went from about like thirty percent of GDP and sort of fairly flat for quite some time through the seventies and eighties. It rose to two hundred and twenty five percent of GDP, and then after the crisis, it's now back down to about the same level as America, which is about one hundred and seventy percent of GDP. So when you let debt get out of hand, you stifle, you stifle everything in the real economy, investment, technological development, and happiness. This can easily be charted. You have the key for financial debt is debt grows by compound interest. I can send you the, and while that, the economy grows at an S-curve, it tapers off. And the reason it tapers off is as debt grows at compound interest, there's a gap. And more and more of the output uh, of wages and profits have to be paid to the creditors as interest. And the more you pay in uh, interest and uh, amortization to the uh, uh, creditor class, the less you have to pay on goods and services. Uh, this uh, The most sophisticated mathematical model of this uh, uh, was in Babylonia in 1750 B.C., uh, the the Babylonians had a very clear model uh, because we have the uh, what uh, the uh, textbooks that they taught for their scribes. They asked, "How fast does a uh, uh, does a debt grow uh, at uh, uh, compound interest?" Well, at twenty percent, every debt doubles in five years. It quadruples in uh, ten years. Uh, it multiplies eightfold in uh, fifteen years, uh, and and on. But the economy they have, how fast does the do a herd of uh, uh, cattle grow? Uh, and they have it 
tapering off. And when uh, modern translators first looked at these, they thought, oh, this must be just actual statistics, but they actually taught it in the model that the uh, rate of debt exceeds the ability to pay. So what what do you do with such a model? Well, it's very simple. Uh, Hammurabi uh, can't, uh, wiped out all of the personal debts uh, four times during his rule. Not commercial debts. Commercial debts owed by businesses to each other stayed in place, but you need a debt write down. If you look at the uh, uh, statistics that Steve just put up on the growth of debt, the only way in which you can prevent this debt from uh, causing a chronic depression, what Irving Fisher called debt deflation in the 1930s, was uh, uh, is to write down the debt. Well, uh, if you look at uh, today, uh, the former head of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, was given the Nobel Prize for saying that there's no such thing as debt deflation. Irving Fisher was wrong. Uh, so they give the Nobel Prize. I think if we give enough prizes to idiot savants who mislead the economy, then uh, per, we can maybe people will think if they have a prize, they're a celebrity. And uh, why listen to Steve and Michael, uh, who are never going to get the Nobel Prize? Because we're, if they gave us the Nobel Prize, they'd have to cancel all the prizes they've given for the last 50 years. <laughs> And the Nobel Prize, I don't know if you guys know this, is not a Nobel Prize. Are you aware of that? Right. Yes. In, in, what's, in what uh, sense? I've got a, that's why I asked. Uh, Nobel, uh, the Alfred Nobel, established the prize in chemistry, physics, uh, literature, and peace, I think, of the, the, the four prizes. Not economics, and actually specifically considered and said it wasn't a science. It shouldn't be given a prize. In 1969, the Swedish Central Bank, uh, was it was fighting head, headed by neoclassical economists was fighting a battle to, pro to prevent the social democratic politics that we tend to still associate with Sweden, and they came up with the idea of having a prize, which is called I can't pronounce the name of the bank in Swedish, the, the Swedish Central yes. Bank Prize in Economics in honour of Alfred Nobel, hmm. nineteen sixty nine. That's when it started. Everybody they've selected, bar a few, uh, a handful of. of of many rebels so that they can sort of quieten down dispute occasionally. But it's been to strengthen the neoclassical vision all the way through. So it's, it's given it strikes me as a bigger stage. problem too with Nobel Prizes, which is how do you walk back on something? Like, you know, science in yeah. general, knowledge, the acquisition yeah, of knowledge is always changing. The way we see things is changing. And I don't know how you, that's kind of one of the dangers of giving these monumental prizes that you don't have the ability yeah. to change your mind anymore, which is really dangerous to progress. So you, you, you can't with, we can't withdraw a prize. I, I think they should, if it was possible, withdraw a prize. The two prizes I'd most want to withdraw are William Nordhaus's prize in 2018 for the so-called economics of climate change. I only read his shit, and that's my technical description of what he wrote. I only read his shit after he got the prize and realized how bad it was. I'd read Bernanke's before the prize. When I saw they're given that that guy's been given the prize for an approach a model a model of lending which the Bank of England said is garbage in 2014 the Bundesbank said is garbage in 2017 literally said the textbooks are wrong and they give a prize to yeah. this guy five years later after the after the Bundesbank so it is just a sign of how it's an ideology it's not a science. But that's why they, uh, it's, it's given, and that's why it's named for Nobel. Nobel yeah. uh, invented dynamite, which is how he made the fortune to support it. Uh, the Nobel Prize is for intellectual dynamite. It blows up the understanding of the economy to leave uh, devastation uh, in its wake. <laughs>
<laughs> Poor Nobel. Uh, I want to. Uh, I want to understand something about the way that. Uh, profits become accumulated at the peak of the credit structures because we were we were talking about the way that debt grows and the financial system makes most of its profits off of servicing that debt and i guess i'm trying to understand what actually happens to the money that's accumulating there like does it get paid out as salaries does it just live in the bank and then allow the bank to then progressively ratchet up its influence on the economy or or like what what happens like if it's debt and it's being calculated as part of the economy and somebody's accumulating it is it real wealth that's getting spent or is it just sitting on a ledger somewhere being accounted for but not being used oh you love to ask uh, trick questions. Uh, what they count as profit is what anybody earns, whether they earn it or it's unearned uh, ec economic rent. Uh, financial, uh, let's say revenue, which is the word that the classical economists use. Uh, the financial revenue, what do they? What do banks do? They relend it and yet more debt. That's why debt grows exponentially. All of the revenue of the uh, uh, that the banking financial sector earns is reinvested in yet more debt. To invest, uh, indebt the economy yet more, siphoning off yet more revenue from the uh, from industry and from wage earners. So there's even less and less and less money to spend on the goods and services that they produce, and you pr you uh, create economic uh, shrinkage. So uh, the uh, it's not industrial profits that grow; it's the profits of the rentiers and the monopolists. Uh, uh, and if you don't believe there's any such thing as economic rent or monopoly rent or landlord rent or financial rent then uh, to you, it's all the same thing. There's no distinction at all. Can we break apart the distinction between economic, financial, landlords, like all of these different types of rents? They're, they, what they have in common is they're, they're unearned. Uh, and uh, as John Stuart Mill said, landlords make their rent in their sleep. Well, so do uh, uh, financial uh, investors who hold bonds or mortgages. Uh, they they make their rent without enterprise, without earning. They play no role in the process of production, employment, and uh, reinvestment and economic growth. They are uh, they simply uh, obtain a special privilege, a monopoly privilege, the privilege of being a creditor, and, and uh, instead of having the government as the creditor, as you have in China. Uh, and as long as you, they're yeah unearned. But surely there's a role for rent, right? There, there, there must be a role. I mean, when kids come out of the house at 18, they're not going to be able to afford a house under any economic structure that I can imagine. So, do you imagine just go ahead? There's, there's a there's a role for rental, uh, but you have to constrain it. So there's a role for debt, but you have to constrain it. Michael's point earlier about the some area, and Michael knows this, this is his area's expertise, not mine. But what you had in that vision was you had an agricultural society, you had physical bounds on your, your plots. So if you start farming somewhere, you're going to reach the boundaries at some point. But if you're borrowing and, and, and you've got to pay really high compound interest, that's going to rise exponentially. And what happened is this is me telling Michael, Michael's work. So pardon me, mate. I want to just elaborate on your, on your idea. The, the, the debts, of, of, of financial, of corporate corporate debt, 
know, people doing trading. That wasn't abolished. That was left as it was because that was a corporate decision. But most of these deaths run up in mead halls uh, or they were run up uh, with with uh, with failures of crops and so on. And there were such high rates of interest, they'd necessarily grow faster than the productivity of the fields that were actually supporting it. Now, the, the downside for the the uh, the emperor at that stage was only free men could fight in the army. So the more debt that occurred, the more people became wage slaves, had to go and work on the land of the landlord. And if that continued long enough, there'd be no army to fight off the other empires and you'd collapse. So there was a, a strong reason for the state to come in and say, we're going to abolish these debts. You could go back as and be free men back on the land you lost because of the debts you ran up in the meat hall or through failed harvests, and you'd re replenish and regenerate. And if you look, and this again is Michael's work, you look at the history of human civilization from way back those 3,000 years BC, right through the Roman period to today, a huge part of what we see in all sorts of great men theories of conflict have really been struggled between debtors and creditors. And the, the political power now is in the hand of the creditors. And that's what gives you a society which ultimately undermines itself. And that's what we're seeing now. So it sounds like you're saying that if we bring back debtors' prisons and we imprison the large majority of people that have debt, all of a sudden we'll create the incentive structure for cancelling the debt because there's literally not going to be anybody to work anymore. People, if you can still vote in jail, I mean, yeah, you <laughs> won't, of course. But you know, it, you know, it, it is the extent to which uh, political power rests with those who own the money. And... If you let them, they, they are their own worst enemies in the long run. So even though they're dominating, they're the 1% or the 0.01% really. They're the ones who are benefiting out of the current system. Their decisions about how to run it are undermining its viability. Well, the problem is that the financial sector doesn't have a long run. They live in the short run. It's a hit and, yeah. hit and run. That's the problem. They don't care about the long run. They'll say, well, we'll do something else uh, when we wreck this economy. They'll move on to another. And you can see this most of all in the international economy, mm -hmm. uh, the, the global south debt, uh, dollar debt. How is it ever going to be paid? All of this was debated in the 1920s uh, with German reparations and inter-allied debts. And all of that's been expunged from the economics curriculum. And uh, I went all the way through uh, a PhD without ever hearing a word about uh, uh, debt or uh, the uh, uh, the debt crises. It's uh, not talked about in polite company. Yeah, so that's something that I wanted to go into, which is the eventual pressure, not just on a bank on its own people, but this gradual push towards the bank pressuring other countries and affecting their ability to make freely self-determined choices. And it seems like an extension of just resource extraction because the terms of the loans are often extortionist. And so one generation agrees to the term of the loans, another generation is paying it off, and it promotes poverty and the ability to just extract the wealth from a country that has agreed to something that maybe it didn't really understand to begin with or was well, forced to. Yeah, yeah. Since Steve talked a lot about uh, global warming, uh, before I talk about third world debt, I want to talk about uh, uh, why uh, uh, neoliberal has a has a financial center, and it's America, and uh, America's uh, balance of pay control over the international economy is very much uh, by control of the oil uh, oil industry. Uh, the financial sector makes loans to 
whatever sector can buy, uh, afford to pay the most uh, uh, interest back and the most prof uh, the most I won't say profitable the most rent intensive sector is the oil sector uh, a do every dollar of oil uh, uh, investment abroad is repaid in balance of payments terms in 18 months at least that's what i uh, i found in the only study of the oil industry that's been done so the uh, one of the aims uh, and objectives is finance of finance capitalism is to speed up global warming uh, and to control the world economy by being able to turn off uh, any country's uh, uh, oil electricity and economic power and hence its growth of GDP as well as warming houses, uh, it will if it can control the oil trade. That's why the United States uh, uh, blew up the pipelines uh, with Russia. If the United States uh, uh, can control the oil trade uh, of the world, then it can uh, uh, essentially have uh, a stranglehold on the economy. And uh, that's why the United States' uh, uh, prime aim in diplomacy is there. Uh, we will disable any attempt to slow global warming, gl uh, accelerating global warming, preventing uh, an alternative to oil, gas, and coal is uh, uh, a key to America's ability to control uh, the world economy. And Steve has done all the numbers on that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, the, I, I blame particular Americans, not just America in general, for global right. warming. William Nordhaus being one of the main ones. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name, but a, a, a physicist as well who uh, worked for the government and talked the government out of worrying about global warming back in the eight, back in the seventies and eighties, which is why America's done nothing about it. But yeah, it's it, again, this is a, this is a point of the, of the short termness of capitalism and why that's so damn dangerous of the financial sector in particular, because they're all on, you know, three-month reporting, the best they look five years in the future. And I'm speaking from personal experience here in that I've written a report uh, called Loading the Dice Against Pensions, which points out the extent to which neoclassical economics in the form of William Nordhaus's models and all the models that have been generated around uh, by, by his cabal of neoclassical economists uh, trivialize the dangers of climate change with the worst research I've ever seen in my life. Okay, dreadful, dreadful stuff. Should never have been published. But the impact of, of, of the, I mean, saying, and just pointing out how badly these pension funds have been advised by consultants who relied upon the economic research, uh, the barrier I've come up against is say, well, yeah, but that's outside our investment horizon. That's more than five years in the future. Mm. Now, if civilization is going to be destroyed in six years, that's outside their investment horizon. I, I wouldn't expect civilization to be destroyed in six years, though. I would expect that there would be a perpetual, oops, I would expect that there would be a perpetual decay that you see in advance. And so if you look at your five-year window and it starts to just trend down for the next, you know, for the last 10 five-year windows, then you're looking at the decay. And is, is that kind of how they use to justify? No, no. They just, it's, it's, if, it, if it doesn't affect their current profit and loss statements and the three-year reporting and five-year reporting and so on, then they're not going to be bothered about it. Hmm. Now, with, that means that you only start realizing, oh, global warming is affecting us, we should do something about it when it's too late. You can't have that time horizon to survive something of the nature of global warming. And, and economists have played an enormous role in trivializing the dangers 
And when it, when capitalism collapses, and I'm using when, not if, when capitalism collapses, it'll be the fall of the economists, neoclassical economists, not the radicals. The people who are going to bring capitalism down are the ones who think it's, who think they're its friends. Okay, so when you say that uh, capitalism collapses, what what do you see? Neo-feudalism or you see something totally different? Mad Max. I mean, that's very romantic, but... No, it's yeah, not it's romantic. I'm looking forward to dying before it happens. Um, <laughs> I mean, and it's... it's um, I can't... If, if you, Having watched COVID in particular and seeing the catastrophe that our so-called leaders made of that, if you didn't have experts at all in charge of anything at any point, when you had idiots like uh, Boris Johnson, he's being exposed in uh, a COVID inquiry in, in the UK right now, the stupidity of the decisions that were made. To imagine that we're going to realise there's a threat and then organise collectively and do the right thing and just manage to save ourselves in the nick of time is a Hollywood movie. It ain't going to happen. What is happening is that the uh, the world is now dividing into two halves. You have uh, the golden billion, the garden of uh, the Anglo-Saxon world, Europe and America, and you have the jungle. Uh, that's how the head of uh, Borel at the European Union expresses it. The jungle is the 75% of humanity. China, Russia, Iran, uh, the, the BRICS plus countries. Uh, so, And th uh, they are the uh, groups uh, led by China that are moving towards socialism. And what makes China so uniquely different from uh, the capitalist countries is the, uh, they have kept money creation and banking and credit in as a public utility in the government hands. So in America, when a corporation goes bankrupt, uh, it's uh, closed down, it's sold uh, uh, and uh, dismantled. In China, if you're the, the creditor, uh, China is the one country where uh, it's politically possible to uh, cancel the debts without a uh, creating a political crisis, because you're cancel if you're the government, you're canceling debts owed to yourself. Uh, it's always easier to cancel the debts owed to themselves, which is why Hammurabi in Babylonia was able to write them down, because the palace and the temples were the creditors, not a a, a privatized uh, financial class. So the privatized financial class uh, in the West is the has uh, essentially replaced the landlord class. Uh, the great, the major source of debt uh, and credit is now mortgage loans uh, in the West. Uh, Eighty percent of American and British loans are mortgage loans uh, for real estate. So there isn't a landlord class anymore. Uh, but still, land rent is uh, has created a uh, a rent seeking class. Although it's a rent-seeking financial class, not a landlord uh, large class, but uh, in China has the ability uh, to right now cope with the fact that its uh, uh, real estate prices are also collapsing. But it it doesn't have to evict uh, the homeowners. It can uh, just either write down the debts or it can let the the private banks that have borrowed from the uh, central bank of China and rent out lent out money uh, to uh, the big real estate companies. Companies like Evergrande and Country Garden that have uh, uh, overbuilt, uh, it can let the banks go under. And the good thing about letting the banks go under is you wipe out all of the large depositors. You uh, move towards uh, equalizing the income. And uh, th that is the, the beauty of canceling the debt, is you cancel the savings of this predatory 1% financial class uh, uh, th uh, th that you want to. So uh, you, get, you benefit the debtors and you benefit society 
society by uh, removing the creditors from uh, their position of trying to take power and dismantle government's attempt to uh, regulate them and uh, create an overall prosperity. Is there any modern precedent for debt cancellation? Yes, uh, 3,000 years of uh, uh, every Near Eastern ruler, uh, not only Sumerian, but Babylonian, uh, every Near Eastern kingdom, even Assyria, canceled the debts. And uh, that uh, the Babylonian. Michael, I know, I, know you're, I know you're older than us, but I feel like Sumerian uh, uh, Babylonia is, <laughs> isn't a fair example of no, modern debt cancellation. Yeah, what would, the, what would the modern version of that look like? Like, how would that even unfold? Well, Who would have the power to pull that off? Have you probably well, like the, the uh, Germany, uh, Germany's economic miracle in uh, 1948, when they wiped out uh, all debt uh, except for the debt that employers owed their employees for the last week or you know month or two, and everybody was allowed to keep a a, a, a few thousand uh, uh, marks in uh, uh, in the bank. So uh, the Germany uh, wrote down the debt because most of the uh, creditors were Nazis, and the debts were owed to the Nazis. So it's easy uh, when you don't treat the Nazis. The problem is that we don't treat uh, Goldman Sachs and Chase Manhattan as uh, financial Nazis, and uh, we're not willing to uh, write down uh, the debts owed to them uh, as uh, the Allies were willing to write down uh, the German debts in uh, 1948 that started the economic miracle. Is the- Michael and I have been pushing this point for decades now. That you, if you want to get capitalism to function well, you reduce private debt. Okay, that's the the private debt and and unearned income are the two things you want to get re, re, minimize to enable capitalism to grow. And it's done by accident for the Germans after World War Two, uh, and that was in in reaction to what the disaster they caused when they did the opposite after World War One. Uh, so that the Marshall Plan was the last time America acted with intelligence in the international sphere, and and the benefits of that were huge. Uh, now, we're trying to say the same thing. You could actually reduce private debt by using the government's capacity to create money and cancel uh, private debts in what I call the modern debt jubilee. And I've done the modelling and all this, and Michael and I've spent a long time discussing it. The idea was you'd give everybody an equal amount of money, which means I'd get the same amount of money as Rupert Murdoch. Okay, And then if you had any debt, you'd have to pay it down. If you didn't have any debt, you'd get a cash injection, which you could either spend or you could have controls over it in terms of uh, asset ownership if you didn't want to cause a huge inflationary surge. And if you did that, you'd reduce the level of private debt dramatically. Government debt can be carried easily. And when I've simulated it, government debt also falls ultimately because the rate of turnover of money rises so much because workers suddenly have money without debt so they can suddenly spend. You get a greater level of economic growth coming out of it, so you reduce the debt ratio over time as well. So it's quite feasible to do it, and it'll never happen. Okay, uh, because you know, if only America's armies could only be staffed by people who didn't have debt, then maybe America would agree to cancel household and private debt. Otherwise, it couldn't invade other countries. Um, so, but unfortunately, that's not the case. Wouldn't the banks collapse if you cancelled private debt? Because, I mean, a lot of the banks are... A lot of they have to sack a lot of workers earning ridiculous salaries. That wouldn't be a bad thing. Have to go and get a factory job. The banks would be, uh, as they did under Roosevelt, there'd be a bank holiday, they'd reopen the next day, but uh, the uninsured depositors, the billionaires, would no longer have their money. 
Uh, and again, that's a good thing, not a bad thing, because they haven't used the, their uh, billions uh, of dollars very well. I've, I've actually, I don't model that happening. I model that everybody gets the same amount of money. Money doesn't get destroyed. You have the same amount of money, but you end up backing the money rather than being backed by private debt. It's backed by government money creation capability. You go from credit-based money to fiat-based money. You could leave the same amount of money in there, uh, in the overall system, but by reducing the debt uh, on a per capita basis, you benefit the poor far more than you benefit the rich. And that's the idea behind it. I, I want to think it's just politically palatable. You could actually sell it to, you know, 90% of the population would be better off. The trouble is you simply can't get this idea discussed, idea discussed anywhere uh, in any circles, apart from my, when Michael and I get together. Uh, it, it just, it, it is not even discussed. And economic theory is a major reason why, because you, you know, if you try to argue to Ben Bernanke that you should reduce the level of debt, oh, pure redistribution should have no significant macroeconomic effects. That's from the paper after he, he got the, the, the paper he wrote after the one he got the Nobel Prize for, you know. Um, so economic theory is what's preventing a sensible reform of capitalism. And in terms of the, the global warming, it's what's setting us up for the physical demise of capitalism as, as climatic change destroys sedentary civilizations. So, you know, the, the, the greatest enemy of capitalism is neoclassical economics. Think of it as a debt pollution. And debt pollution is like environmental yeah. pollution. Mm -hmm. It grows and grows and grows and stifles growth. But I'm still thinking about it in terms of just how much money you'd have to actually pay people. I, I was looking at this recently. The average personal debt in the United States is $30,000. And that's like for every man, woman, and... Uh, the 50% of Americans don't have any savings at all. That's right. the key. Look, look, look at who has the savings. If you uh, always look at both sides of the balance sheet, if you think of economics in terms of balance sheets, not just one side, uh, you get uh, the d basic dynamics. Uh, when you talk about debt, also look at savings. 50% don't have any uh, 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 savings, and the average uh, American uh, is only uh, can only raise $400 in an emergency, according to the uh, Federal Reserve uh, statistics. So, you know, what happens when there's an emergency? They're, you, you, they go further and further into debt because they, they, they can't pay for it. That's really the problem that we're, uh, uh, that we're in. So it's not the, the amount of money. Uh, the, what, a lot of money is the savings of the 1%, is the concentration uh, clotting at the top of the economic pyramid. I mean, I just looked it up. The average household debt, as reported by The Motley Fool at the end of 2022, was $100,000. Well, most of that would be uh, uh, real estate debt. Uh, and the reason there's this real estate debt is because uh, of the failure of the 19th century to achieve its main economic objective, which was to uh, uh, finance government not by taxing profits or wages, but by taxing uh, uh, land, land rent. Uh, and if you would have, if uh, all of the increase in land prices as a result of prosperity, population growth, and public spending, if all of this increase in prices were were collect uh, were not given away to the landlords freely, but were collected as the government, then this would this rent would not be available to pledge to the banks 
to pay interest. So uh, simply taxing away land rent would uh, prevent uh, the financialization of uh, uh, land uh, uh, land valuations, which is uh, what most of uh, the debt is in the United States. There's no need at all for this debt. Uh, instead of paying an income tax by the uh, uh, wage earners and uh, the uh, companies, uh, they'd be paying uh, a rent tax on the land, and uh, this rent would not be uh, used to pay interest. Interesting. So you look like you have something you want to ask. Well, it just seems to me like there's two ways to look at the solution set to this. One is a post-collapse narrative, and one of them is something like what individuals right now can do in order to promote a better financial structure in the future. Like, are there things that people can actually do to take, for instance, not taking on debt? Is that a solution that people can actually <laughs> contribute to this whole, or is that an impossible wish? Not, not if you need it to break even. If the break even costs uh, force you to go into debt, then the economy is malstructured. A well structured economy wouldn't force you to go into debt. It wouldn't force you to pay higher and higher debt service uh, to the banks uh, uh, to uh, uh, buy. Uh, a home to live in, uh, because uh, the, 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 it could be the same home that's been there for a hundred years. If that's going up in price, there's no reason to have the banks earn money interest in their sleep by uh, forcing you uh, into debt to uh, pay the land rent to the uh, the banks that can simply create the credit. So, in that sense, all of our, our entire solution mm -hmm. set is bounded in a top-down view that that we fundamentally have to restructure the system in order to actually get out of this hole. There's, there's That's nothing exactly what do. Adam Smith and Ricardo and John Stuart Mill and Marx and uh, all of the cl uh, classical, a free market was all about. A free market is a market free of economic rent. Uh, and now it's a market, it's free for the rentiers to take as much as they want without government regulation or taxation. And this, this is the point that looking back at the the, the, when you classical economics first evolved, it was a fighting the feudal system and arguing in favour of capitalists. Now, the feudal system was overwhelmingly landlords. You might be lord landlord, but you were still a landlord. So your wealth came out of land ownership, and they saw that as unproductive, and they wanted to direct the wealth from the landlord class to the capitalists, and that gave you an anti unearned income perspective of the classical school of economics. And what's happened with the neoclassical taking over, they've abolished that distinction. Everything is your marginal product. And therefore, the landlords, if you're a wealthy landlord, you've got a large marginal product. It's everything is a meritocracy. The, the, the classical school focused on the fact that wealth came out of ownership, not out of uh, what you did. Um, but the neoclassicals have abolished the whole idea that ownership has any role at all, which is crazy because we're talking about capitalism. I, I think that we should take a short break right here and refill coffee and maybe use the bathroom because afterwards I want to get into a historical picture of how this happened because what you guys are saying is that we went from feudalism to capitalism and now we're going from uh, neoclassical economics, which took over from classical economics, back into... Like a financial feudalism. Neo-feudalism. And so I want to see if we yeah. can learn something by looking at that first transition and the one that's happening now to see if we can accelerate the transition back out of it. 
There's one more thing that I wanted to mention. We are organizing our very first conference, Demystacon 2024, which we're going to hold in Austin, Texas, April 7th and 8th of next year. We're going to have two days of talks on astrophysics, cosmology, mythology, archaeology, economics, consciousness, with some of our favorite guests from the podcast. The link for that is down in the description. It's also going to be up here in just a second. But if you have that weekend available and you are interested in joining us, please come over to our Eventbrite and purchase tickets now. If you cannot attend by coming in person, that's totally fine. We also have tickets available for the live stream. So check that out right up here. I was just saying in the break to Anastasia that when I listen to other podcasts by non-economists and they talk about the financial crisis in America, let's say just the this sort of impoverishment of the average person, the idea is that the dichotomy is between socialism and the government stealing up people's money or something and capitalism, free market capitalism. And I think that that's not the right dichotomy to be examining. I think we established that pretty early that. on. But why does that mm. myth persist? Why is that something that most people on the street understand to be the dichotomy? And I imagine that it must be something of a historical artifact because it's a reflection of the most recent economic conflict, which is, you know, Soviets versus Americans. Or if you go even farther back, it's Karl Marx and the the, the development of rising up to own the means of production and so everybody just kind of fits it onto this pattern and just don't go any deeper than that well there are many kinds of socialism just as there are many kinds of capitalism uh and uh the uh idea of socialism in prior to world war one was the, as we said the government was going to uh uh help industrial capitalism and it was the industrialists that were pressing for, so, for socialism in the sense of they were pressing for government to provide as many public services uh, as public utilities as they could in order to make the economy lower priced uh, and uh, more competitive. And that's what was what made industrial capitalism revolutionary. Getting rid of the landlord class was revolutionary. Uh, getting rid of the uh, uh, monopolies was revolutionary. And uh, uh, even uh, turning money uh away from uh, usury and just pure exploitiveness into actually financing production uh, was uh, revolutionary. And all that seemed to be happening, especially in Germany, where you had uh, a unity between uh, uh, government, uh, the, the, the large banks, the Reichsbank, uh, the military, and heavy industry. And that seemed to be the way to go. In, in England, uh, financial uh, uh, policy uh, would be to pay out uh, profits as quick as you could to the financial owners. It was hit and run. But uh, in, in Germany, uh, the uh, banks encouraged companies don't uh, pay out the profits to uh, stockholders, uh, reinvest it in your interest to grow mm -hmm. so the economy can grow. We want to grow through equity. Equity, not through debt. Well, all of that changed in World War One. Uh, it's true that the monarchies were overthrown, uh, but you also had a whole change in what socialism meant. And certainly, the uh, the Russian Revolution, as it turned into Stalinism. Uh, transformed the whole idea of socialism, and they thought of socialism as being intrusive 
and uh, essentially uh, either Stalinism or Nazism, not uh, is a byproduct of an evolution of industrial capitalism. And uh, uh, part of the problem was that uh, the left wing, uh, as it became Stalinoid, uh, stopped talking about finance. Uh, Steve and I, if you look at who are the people that read and pay attention to what Steve and I are saying, it's sort of a uh, across the whole political spectrum. It's not left-wing. If anything, it's more right-wing. The right-wingers are more uh, fo uh, focused on finance uh, than uh, the left-wing. And so uh, the idea of economic reform no longer uh, had a political uh, uh, vehicle for it. Uh, beginning with Ricardo, uh, again in England, uh, the uh, the critics of industrial capital said, well, uh, we're not going to be able to get rid of the landlords until we democratize politics. We want to get rid of the House of Lords being able to dominate British policy, and we have to clean up the rotten boroughs. We have to democratize parliament. And all of this came to uh, an explosive head in 1909 to 10, when uh, the House of Commons actually passed a land tax uh, bill, revenue bill, and the House of Lords vetoed it. And uh, that was a crisis, and the result was that the House of Lords could never again uh, block a revenue bill. So the, the uh, capitalist sector was all in favor of democracy. But needless to say, the financial sector was all against democracy. The financial sector was, let's put it plainly, fascists. The financial sector did not want democracy unless it could manipulate uh, the voters and confuse them into not understanding their class consciousness. And so you had a whole uh, shift in how people thought about the economy, how they thought about what is capitalism and what is socialism. And uh, the result is that the uh, the financial view of socialism is uh, uh, somehow a, a high tax taxes on everybody and progressive taxation that would really hurt the poor more than the uh, uh, the progressive people, all of that went by the wayside. Well, in 1913, the United States uh, finished a whole fight with the Supreme Court. Are you allowed to actually tax wealth and tax income? Uh, well, finally, they uh, the Supreme Court let there be uh, an income tax. But only 1% of Americans had to pay an income tax. And this 1% were America, the rich who made almost all their money through rents and finance, uh, rent seekers. Well, all of that changed uh, when there was a counter-revolution in economic theory saying uh, uh, progressive income's bad, you want a flat tax. Or today, uh, it, the richer you are, the lower your tax bracket. The lower income you have, the more you pay in taxes and uh, uh, various fees. So you've had a failure of the population to understand what Steve and I are, are uh, talking about. That's why we're on your show, not uh, on, uh, on the NBC. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like it, it goes back further than that. And I think there's actually an extent to which it's actually a human characteristic as well. Because if you read like the very, very original neoclassicals, you have to read Augustin Cournot, who was a French mathematician around the turn of the 1800s, and Jean-Baptiste Say, who was an economist and libertarian in the 1820s. And they put across the idea of capitalism being a utility-maximizing, welfare-maximizing system. And it operated best 
when there was perfect competition, no monopolies in the sense of large companies, uh, and they completely ignored the issue of, of land ownership and, and, and those the issues we're talking about, the rent, rent-seeking side. And what you got was to, with, with what became neoclassical economics was a largely a reaction to Marx, because Marx took the classical school of economic thought and then turned that not as a criticism of feudalism and support of capitalism, but criticism of capitalism and support of socialism. Now, Marx's form of socialism was what we call democratic socialism today, you know, um, education for the workers, health care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, the vision that, that Say put forward was of capitalism, free market capitalism as a utility maximizing system. And it gave you this vision of a world where there was no control and no power. So everything worked out fairly and everybody got what they deserved, a meritocracy. And humans, I think, have got a, uh, and we see this in religions like Scientology and Catholicism and all the other religions around the world. We have a vision of a perfect society and we're very good at sharing that with each other. And Capitalism, the, the neoclassical theory, puts across capitalism as a perfect system. And that is what lies behind the neoclassical zealotry because they think they're going to make the world a better place. If only they can get rid of the government intervention, get rid of trade unions, let the market decide, blah, blah, blah. And one of my favourite experiences of that ever was I, I set up a neoclassical economist. He didn't know he was being set up, but he was. I got him to talk to a bunch of you know, unionists and management in the food industry back in Australia. This is back when I worked in part of the government called the Accord, um, which was supposed to get unions and management to get together to, to cooperate. Anyway, this guy came along. He was the person who worked out what was called the effective rate of protection. Uh, and that was straightly neoclassical organisation he worked for called the Industries Assistance Commission, the nickname of which amongst both the manufacturers and the workers was the Industries Assassination Commission. They were trying to abolish tariffs, abolish controls, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this guy got blasted by both sides. He had no idea he was going to get shot, but he did. And I sat down with him afterward feeling sorry for him because he's, you know, nobody else was talking to him. And he's sitting away and having a drink, and he finally says to me, and I, and I quote, look, you're an economist. Help me convert these people. It's a religion, and they don't realise it's a religion. And anything which contradicts that religion, they don't look at, they walk away from. So one essential part of the religion is the idea that cost of supply rises because of what they call rising marginal cost. It costs more to produce a traditional unit of output. And that's driven what they call diminishing marginal productivity, which is that each additional worker is assumed to be as productive as the previous worker, but because you've got a crowded factory, effectively, they produce less output as more workers are added. So productivity per worker falls, cost per worker rises, rising supply curve. When they go and research that, they find that every blast bloody firm they interview virtually says that doesn't apply to us. We've got constant or falling marginal costs. We design factories that are the most efficient at fullest capacity. And that's what they, so dozens of surveys have been done. Every last one has found at least 89% and normally 95% of firms report constant or falling marginal cost. Now, what that means is the whole theory of welfare that's part of their model for it breaks down. So one of them made a big mistake, and a neoclassical economist called Alan Blinder made the mistake of doing a survey to ask manufacturers what their cost structures were. Got this answer and literally, and I quote from his book, described as uh, overwhelmingly bad news, brackets for economic theory. 
It was such bad news that his textbook doesn't even report his own research to his students. He continues with the myth. So this is what the behavior, it's not a behavior of a science, it's a behavior of a religion. And anything which doesn't fit the religion, you either don't look at it in the first place or you reject it if you actually discover it. And that, that comes back to the what is a religion? It's a way of saying this is the way to the promised land. So they see capitalism as the route to the promised land. And that's why they fuck up the bloody thing because it's got no relation whatsoever to the real world. And so is it well, it's a very heavily subsidized religion. Uh, oh, yeah. You know. yeah. And uh, the, uh, yeah. most of the subsidies. Which is why you and I are poor. Yes, go to business schools. And uh, uh, the University of Chicago, uh, uh, founded by the Rockefellers, to, uh, to justify uh, uh, essentially his oil rent, uh, is sort of the leader in the, uh, uh, it is quite frankly a fascist university. It was That was where the Pinochet fascism came from uh, in Chile. Yeah. It was it was uh, from, from the Chicago school. Uh, that th their doctrine is, is uh, fascism. And, uh, what but they the, don't know it is. They they believe their democracy. They know what they've, they've, No, oh, no, I, not, not, I went to the. You, uh, let me you tell went you. There. I mean, Milton. Okay, yeah, I you weren't there. Me. I was. I went to the high school. True. When I was in high school in tenth grade, the uh, the uh, social science teacher Curtis Edgett had a big sign over the bulletin board. Uh, I, I better. Uh, I better not say it. Remember, uh, <laughs> that it was uh, uh, pretty. It was uh, uh, we. Uh, those of us who graduated from the high school and went on to college found when we got our FBI records that our professors normally turned in reports on us to the FBI about what we uh, said. Uh, uh, in class uh, all the time. I mean, it was, uh, and the result is that all this money going to uh, the University of Chicago, uh, Berkeley, and others, they become, uh, they've taken over the editorship of all of the main economic journals. So, uh, yeah. And if you are a graduate in the United States, an economic graduate, the uh, whether you're hired or not by a university depends on whether how many articles you had in the prestigious uh, economic journals. And uh, uh, needless to say, uh, you have to have the party line, or as Steve says, uh, religion. I think a party line is better uh, in order to get uh, published there. So uh, where I taught and uh, mon modern monetary theory was taught at the University of Missouri at Kansas City, our graduates had uh, great difficulty talking about money and debt, getting it published. They'd all get rejections. And as a result of having to uh, publish only in the uh, left-wing uh, journals, uh, they had great difficulty getting uh, uh, hired by prestigious universities. So it's a very well-subsidized junk economics, uh, basically. And is the subsidy done in service of maintaining financial capitalism? Like, what is <laughs> Amazingly the enough, yes. Uh, of course it is. They're, they're going to. They they want to popularize something that says that they are productive, not unproductive. That's the great myth that the parasites are productive. The 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 parasites take over the body. No, I'm I'm talking from a broader experience of like not the mainstream university. Like University of Chicago is absolutely top of the neoclassical pecking order. So I went to places like Sydney, New South Wales, Western Sydney. Kingston and so on in the UK. And you still get people who've got and nowhere near this gravy train and nowhere near having political influence 
of being working for the state because often working in state-run universities, and they start this religion. It, they actually believe it, and that's why they're so fucking dangerous, pardon the French, because the, it, it, it's if you have somebody who's paid to believe it, so it's all they're, they're helping out oil, blah, 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 you can pay them a bit more money or that they've got to be at least partial. They've got to have some sort of, you know, internal conflict uh, out of the supporting libertarian arguments and knowing they're supporting multinational wealth and so on. But these people believe it, and they're not even getting rewarded for it. So that's why I'd say I see a religion as more appropriate analogy because you have true believers who are in poverty because of what they believe. But they, they push out this myth of a libertarian, meritocratic system. And that myth uh, persists partly because of money at the top, but also because many people believe it. And humans in general, I think, are seduced by the idea of a, a vision of a perfect society. Well, I think Wall Street is not as bad as the universities. Uh, in in yeah, Wall Street, true. they didn't care what my politics were. They knew what my politics were. All they cared was whether I was right or wrong. Uh, and I did very well on Wall Street. But in academia, they didn't care about whether I was right or wrong. All they cared about was what I believed. And uh, they thought that be uh, certainly at uh, the New School, uh, which was a left-wing university under Bob Heilbronner, well, it was a Stalinist university, uh, uh, they... Uh, thought that because I came from Wall Street, I had to be a left-winger. And uh, Haldroner said, look, if you're talking about finance, you're a right-winger. Uh, and I wanted to cancel debt. And he said that would just discredit the entire left. We can't talk about uh, the need to cancel mm. debt. Uh, and uh, he uh, he also attacked me for uh, writing for Catholic uh, publications and uh, for having the Catholic Church uh, 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 popularize my ideas as part of the land reform uh, uh, issues. So I found that the universities, especially the left-wing universities, were the most hardline, right-wing religious uh, people. And Wall Street, I, uh, they, they welcomed my ideas because Steve and I have the right ideas. That's why most of our support comes from the financial sector. They know what's happening. It's ironic, but true. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if the so, financial yeah, sector it, it's supports... It's a weird world. Yeah, if the financial sector is oh, they don't supporting... support our policies, they support our analysis. Yes, yes. I see. Okay, so what's the, for internal what's the use only? <laughs> I mean, like for example, I'm looking at uh, my analysis now of credit and unemployment, and I'm uh, people that followed my work develop what they call the credit accelerator to explain the, the rise and fall of asset prices, and did very well out of speculating on the basis of that. I don't have the money to speculate, uh, but you know that. I know people who've made a large amount of money out of following the idea that I have and Michael has and other people who are non-orthodox non thinkers because we're actually identifying what's going to cause a big change in the market next, whereas the neoclassicals teach this nonsense of the efficient markets hypothesis. And you all know Warren Buffett, obviously. Buffett was being criticised when he was doing his degree and saying, look, there's no profit to be made. You know, the market is efficient. And he said, if that's true, I'm going to be broke. Oh. He ain't broke. So what is inside of the finance... If, if the people on the inside of the financial sector realize that things are broken, what are the decisions that they are attempting to make in order to fix it? Or is the train... <laughs> oh, <don't> fix it. <laughs> Their idea of fixing it is... I don't want to... 
to make as much money as they can. They want to fix it by increasing the stock prices on which their bonuses are fed. They want to fix it by uh, using uh, profits to pay out as dividends and for stock buybacks, not to invest. They want to fix it by making more money for themselves. That's their idea of we're, acting rationally. We're, we're trying to say, look, this, this is why the system fucks up. Uh, let's do something to fix it. And they say, this is why the system fucks up. Let's ride the wave. Um, so nice. you, you do get some people in finance. I mean, Nick Hanur, for example, is somebody who's a, who's a socially minded billionaire, and he will be putting forward ideas about how we have to. His, his next book is on the on this topic, uh, reforming the system. I don't know where he go far as actually agreeing with uh, wealth confiscation or even a modern debt jubilee. Maybe he would for the modern debt jubilee. But in general, people in finance are looking for an advantage, and if you're following a theory which is not delusional then you're going to have an advantage. And Warren Buffett was the classic one of following a non-delusional theory. The, the efficient market hypothesis said you can't find a badly priced company. Well, and he Steve, said, you've got to be kidding. So yeah. that's how he made his money. Well, Steve used the word reform. And the question is, uh, is, it, is reform enough or do you need a revolution? Reform is simply fixing an existing structure to make it stronger. A revolution is to change the structure. And we've reached a point at which in order to save the economy, save the environment, uh, save uh, the world military situation, you, you need really uh, a revolution. And uh, I think Marx said the end of capitalism will not be a pretty sight uh, on one occasion. And in, in a way, the run, uh, it's very funny, the, the people who, the debtors and the uh, wage earners are not going to lead a revolution uh, violently. Violence ever since Greece and Rome, uh, all the way to modern times. Violence is always used by the free lunchers, by the rentiers, by the takers to uh, protect their predatory uh, power. It's not by the victims. Violence is by the victimizers, unfortunately. And so you need, uh, this forces a revolution, uh, as you you saw in Latin America. Uh, you had the revolutions have been uh, sponsored by the United States, have all been from the right wing, from the pro-financial, uh, uh, neo-feudal, or outright uh, fascist uh, uh, Pinochet Chicago sector. Uh, you had, and uh, the one country that's immune mostly is China that had its own revolution in order to make all of this possible. Well, prior to the fascist revolution, there was something of a democratic revolution in Chile, from what I understand. Right? They had some sort oh, of democratic yeah. election. This didn't go over well. The redistribution of land didn't go over well. Right. Yes, particularly and, with uh, the foreign and investors. And so Kissinger said, uh, yeah, just because they, uh, they vote wrong doesn't mean that we should uh, 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 follow them. What, what, uh, the, you use the word democracy. Democracy is a euphemism for, uh, for oligarchy. We, we're not in a democracy. We're in an oligarchy. And sure. uh, if you don't realize that, then you don't understand who's making uh, the decisions of power and uh, what governments are doing to protect oligarchic power against other people. Uh, and Aristotle, in his uh, book on constitutions, said many constitutions claim to be uh, democratic, but uh, they're really oligarchic. And that's as much the case today as it was in his day. Okay, so one of the problems that I see with debt cancellation is we were we we had this very active debate about the canceling of student debts. Over the course of the last few years, definitely people are still talking about it. And 
on some level, I am viscerally pro the cancellation of student debt. On the other hand, what I see happening is you have the massive increase in the cost of education that's going to the administrations uh, and not towards professors and students. Like there was, uh, I looked at this the other day, I think that Harvard has a one-to-one ratio almost of students to administrators. And so it feels like what you do in that case by canceling student debt is, yes, you relieve the individual, but you have passed an approving judgment on the structure of the universities that allows them to maintain this kind of... But I mean, right. So, the, okay, let me see if I can if I can lay out the way that I think about this. So, okay. Okay. if you if you have a student that pays money to a university where most of the money is going to the administrators, and they've taken the money out as a loan, and they don't end up paying back the loan, but the loan is forgiven, the university has made a large profit, and there is nothing that prevents the university from continuing to extract wealth from the financial sector by getting these students to take these massive loans. The students get their loans eventually forgiven, but the system continuously ratchets up costs. The system began by making students borrow money to do education. Uh, and this, the, the, I've, I've, been, I've experienced this from the very beginning to, to where I've literally caused a bit of a dispute in the vice chancellor's office when I decided to resign from Kingston University. This huge growth in administrators is all a product of turning universities into profit centres. Because when the universities were government funded, this is, I'm talking in Australia's case now, government funded, they did have private fees initially. Uh, so if you, didn't, if you didn't get in through competitive means, you could buy your way in. Uh, but most of the people got there through competitive means. And then uh, in 70, I began university in 1971. In 73, we had a progressive Labor government come in, which abolished student fees. And that, that meant you went to university if you got a good enough mark. That was the only entrance you needed was good school results. And at that point, the ratio of administrators to staff would have been one to two or one to three. Now, three, three academic staff for every administrator. And the administrators were there to do the administrative work for the academics. So the hierarchy was definitely you know, academics above, administrators below. When we got this push to commercialise universities again, your administrators became marketers. They end up on top. They're telling you what to do. And they had this enormous growth in a, in a, a superstructure of what our great old friend uh, David Graeber called bullshit jobs whose whole role was to try to market the university. And then what they did, market the bloody vice-chancellor, who's just a damn clerk. And, um, you know, you, you see all the public relations for the university. It wasn't about the innovative academic stuff. We had. It was what a great vice-chancellor we had. So this huge hierarchy of bullshit jobs to support the vice-chancellor developed out of commercialising it. And they're all competing. They, they, they start out, you know, University of Western Sydney starts a department in, in Saskatchewan to try to compete for the Saskatchewan market, and they're all trying to get extra market share, it's ludicrous. And what it's meant is far more of the money in university these days go to administration and marketing than actually goes to research and teaching. And I've lived through it. It's been a bloody nightmare. And that's why I was glad to leave the university sector in 2018. Uh, And I've done far more academic work since I left than I ever managed when I was there because I got rid of all the stupid form filling and ludicrous 
reports to bureaucrats who haven't got a fucking clue, pardon me, I'm becoming really Australian talking about this, haven't got a clue what an academic actually does and got in the way of us doing the work that we all became academics to try to do in the first place. So the whole bureaucratization and overloading of universities has been a product of commercializing them, believing the profit motive would work better for managing universities. In fact, it's corrupted them extremely badly, even to the point where I have had students say, look, I've paid for my degree. Like I've been shopping at uh, you know, Kmart and bought something and they think they can walk out the door because they've paid the bill. Sorry, you're not bright enough. You deserve to fail. You can't tell, you, you've got to pass the idiots these days. There's enough idiots already. You know, but that's uh, if if you abolish student fees and abolish private funding, abolish the student, the, the cons you don't treat the student like a consumer. The student's a student; they're there to learn. Okay, and so they've got to compete well enough to get in. If they don't do well enough, they fail. You know, you know, I'm 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 quite a libertarian in most of my attitude. But if you're not smart enough, if you don't get the exams done, you fail. You repeat. You can't do that to them these days. So the whole, if you got rid of the whole superstructure of turning them into marketed private institutions, you'd reduce the cost structure quite radically and you'd make it cheaper to educate and you'd have academics who've got time to be academics and think as well as teach well uh, rather than the shit we have these days. Well, there's a race to the bottom going on also. Uh, yeah. that, uh, you have How do you uh, maximize your uh, profit? You lower the cost of production. How do you, and uh, instead of hiring full-time teachers in the United States uh, yeah. at, uh, let's say, uh, 60000 a year, you can hire part-time uh, teachers at uh, $2,500 a year uh, for, yeah. uh, per course. And so you've, you, you've had uh, uh, pushing them way down. There was a protest... Uh, uh, I live in New York City, and uh, I have friends who are professors at NYU, uh, and they oh. had uh, the uh, uh, pro uh, professors who were complaining that uh, no new professors were being hired. They were all part-timers, uh, and you're having graduate students do the teaching, uh, uh, no hire hires, and uh, the uh, there are more and more deans and sub-deans and bureaucrats, as Steve pointed out, being appointed, oh. and uh, what is the job of a dean? It's to lower the price of the people working for you, the lower the cost of teaching and giving the, the income you save to yourself. So you make money by lowering the uh, wages that are paid uh, to the uh, other people. So the professors have been downsized, basically, and uh, uh, a premium is put on inexperience, literally the race to the bottom. But that's not really the main cost. The main, uh, what made uh, China so great for thousands of years was Confucianism. The idea that everybody was going to take exams uh, and you would have the best people uh, 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 basically ending up as administrators. Uh, you, uh, if you ch make, uh, if you limit a university uh, registration uh, to the rich uh, and say, if you if you don't inherit your wealth, uh, you're going to have to go into a lifetime of debt in order to get an education. And if you do not inherit uh, an, uh, enough money from your parents to pay, then you're not going to be able to buy a house when you graduate. You're not going to be able to start a family because no bank will lend you money because your income over and above uh, cons basic consumption goes to pay the university 
sorry, you can't afford a house. That's the result of of uh, not writing of not writing down uh, student debt and of teaching treating education not as a public utility, not as a human mm -hmm. right, but as a profit center. Uh, that uh, that's the result. And that's exactly and what that's I'm pointing to. Which you're, is you're saying you 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 don't abolish the debt. Yeah. You think if you abolish you don't, the debt, you don't run same. into the first place. You abolish the debt, you get rid of the whole commercialization, you get rid of the administrative layer, and you drastically reduce the cost, and the state pays for education. Yes. Okay, but if you, the if you abolish yeah. the debt after this, because the students pay in the moment, the universities have already gotten that money. And so if mm. you abolish the debt without a simultaneous shift in the way that the universities do business, then the universities are not suffering the ill effects of oh. that debt abolishment because if, no they've already got paid yeah exactly <laughs> they've already got paid it's, uh, this debt is owed to the government the, it doesn't cost the government a penny to cancel the debt it just is not going to collect the debt from the people but it we're, won't we're, cost we're, a penny but we're definitely in favor of completely changing the university system as well it's a nightmare i i, I when I, I did a phd back in the 90s late 80s early 90s and um when I took it on, I took I suffered a substantial pay drop, uh, but I didn't regard myself as putting myself in poverty for future. Now the, the pay that students in, in most universities, certainly American universities tend to be better actually on this front, better pay rates, but the pay rates are so bad that I've ended up telling my PhD students in later years, don't get a job at a university, learn how to make coffee, become a barista, Work nine to five. If they force you to work later than five o'clock, I'll pay you time and a half. When you get home, you'll have plenty of energy to do the research you would have done if you had time as an academic. But instead, all the academics are working two and three positions. They're basically, you know, it's Uber, Uber, Uber in front of a blackboard. Uh, terrible situation, terribly insecure. It's an awful lifestyle. And that means what you, you're then saying, you're only an idiot would work at a university. And that ends up with a dumb population. We want to go back to the stage of education, as Michael said, as a Confucian thing. It's the highest, it's the exalt, most exalted role. You get your best people in there and you get them, give them time to think. And because we haven't done it, we're screwing up a capacity to think and we're supposed to be, a, you know, an intelligent species. Well, I think there's a vocabulary problem here. You're using the word university. Uh, what you really mean is a real estate company that holds uh, classes in some of its real estate in order to get tax exemption on all of its other real estate. The largest real estate investors, uh, owners in New York are Columbia University and New York University. Uh, they, they, uh, to them, uh, giving an education is just part of the annoying overhead. They're into uh, making uh, uh, real estate gains and uh, increasing their uh, endowment. That's uh, uh, So we really shouldn't think of them as teaching at all. They're real estate companies with a tax exemption. But even, so Columbia and NYU, private universities, and so this uh, real estate company model for them makes a lot of sense. But I'm thinking about even the University of California system, which is a public system. And, you know, I was just looking at it. In the 1980s, I think tuition was $700 for a semester. Yeah. And now I think it's over 20000 Thank you, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and, and, and that's that's all the cost increase by turning into privately run organizations. Yeah. And there's this myth 
we're talking about earlier. The neoclassicals believe everything is done better privately, you know, lower cost, more efficient, blah, blah, blah. In fact, what happens is you have universities that used to be happy with their own intake. You know, the University of Los Angeles wasn't trying to get students from San Diego. Then you put them into commercial. They're all competing for market share. So they start marketing, huge increase in marketing costs. They have all these bureaucrats who are now involved in packaging, you know, sales material for the universities. An enormous distribution costs. So all that stuff doesn't exist when you don't have private competition. And you're far better off having publicly funded, well publicly funded universities than private ones. A few private make, make sense in some, in some areas, but to privatise the entire system ends up in a disaster. And that's what we've got now. And I've, I've lived the experience of going from the days when it was state controlled and state funded and you had to get, you had to get good results to get in and no money was paid. Now a fortune is paid and the whole effort, everything is about getting more students in and marketing. And that dominates everything, including the teaching. Well, let's talk about why there are public universities in America to begin with. Uh, mm. They were created after World War, after the Civil War, as a result of uh, the Republicans' uh, protectionists, uh, the industrialists coming to power. And uh, the I wrote a whole book about this: Americans' protectionist takeoff. Uh, the, uh, the the Republicans, uh, the and the industrial capitalists uh, who they represented had a problem. Uh, people who went to the prestige private universities, uh, Harvard was uh, considered to be the worst, uh, but there were other bad ones: uh, Yale and uh, all of the Ivy League uh, universities. Uh, basically, all taught British free trade theory. The the uh, 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 private universities in America be, until the Civil War were basically for training members of the clergy. Uh, and their economic course was the, taught in the fourth year, your senior year of college, uh, and it was more. It was, it was called moral philosophy. And uh, the, this was all free trade. It was all British free trade theory. And the Republicans came in and the business interests and said, how are we going to get uh, uh, people educated in reality economics? The fact that free trade uh, benefits the dominant country and uh, uh, prevents countries like us from catching up. Well, we're going to create state universities. And what we're going to do, we're going to give every state a land grant. And the land grant is going to enable them to uh, f uh, uh, fund uh, courses uh, for the public at large. And uh, the, uh, this is going to be where reality economics is taught instead of the British free trade uh, right wing uh, theory. And uh, that you had, uh, in addition to the uh, state universities, you had the first business schools uh, that were funded. And uh, the business schools were all uh, staffed by uh, Americans who'd studied in Germany and came back as social democrats or outlined social outright socialists. And the first economics professor in the United States at the first business school was Simon Patton at uh, the Wharton School of Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, who uh, developed the whole idea of public infrastructure as a fourth factor of production but a factor of production that didn't seek profits or rents, but uh, sought to lower the price 
for the economy as a whole. They it was the business schools and the state colleges that taught so essentially how uh, industrial capitalism would evolve into a mixed economy, uh, quasi socialist uh, economy to benefit uh, capital formation. And uh, uh, all of this again was changed uh, in modern times. Somehow the universities have been financialized and taken over and uh, become part of the uh, the race to the bottom. And as a result, you've had a stratification of the American economy. If you don't inherit uh, wealth from your family, you have a lifetime of debt. And that is dividing the economy into two classes, the debtor class and the, the inheritance class. Uh, and is that really what you want the university system to produce, a class conflict? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a hu that's a huge problem. I see it in the small. We teach it, so we actually we're living this. We're teaching at a university, so we teach at Southern Oregon University, which is about an hour away. And Shiloh is teaching astrophysics and cosmology. I'm teaching uh, microbiology labs, and it's really interesting because there's some students that are first generation who are working full time, going to school full time, and they have this very very clear vision for what their path is going to look like. Like there's one girl in one of my classes, she's the oldest of four. She is the her 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 and her siblings are basically first generation born in the country. And she works full time at a coffee shop and wants to be a plastic surgeon. And she just she has this arc laid out for herself and she's very very competent. And then there's other students who are clearly They've been admitted to a for-profit system that doesn't really care if they succeed or they don't succeed because they don't come to class, they don't do the work, and they're being charged for it. They've probably taken a loan to arrive there. And there's no mechanism by which the university takes it upon itself to say, hey, you need to stop paying us because this is extortionist and immoral, and just continues to collect from students that probably shouldn't be there like they should take a couple years figure it out and come back and it's really heartbreaking because it just seems like a place that is meant to be the source of foundational knowledge and wisdom for the society has been converted to yet another place of financialization profits and these interests exactly. that drive everybody into the ground and you're We're talking like, about that yeah go on that is such a dangerous thing to do but what's the most important foundational thing of a, a, a civilized society is education. But you're so talking it, about education and something real. The fact is, if you yeah. and I were in a university, we couldn't fit what we're talking about into the curriculum. Right? Oh, I had to make my own curriculum. Yeah. I mean, that's, oh, like a year. I, I, I succeeded. I went up as I went down. So uh -huh. like I started off in the, the top university in Australia where I led a student revolt, revolt against economic teaching in 1973. I then used the second one where I got my PhD until they sacked all the tutors when there was a, a government decision in favour of uh, employ, employment um, permanency. They sacked all the tutors to get rid of having to give them permanency. And then I moved to a, a, a second-rate university called Western Sydney where all the rebels ended up, or the mainly rebels, 
And so we had a progressive department there and then Kingston. So I've been succeeding going up the professorial scale while the university I've been teaching had been going down. But all the top universities taken over by neoclassicals. They drop yeah, that's actually one of the really wonderful people. benefits of, of teaching out at a university that nobody knows anything about is that there isn't a ton yeah, of exactly. there isn't a ton yeah. of oversight in terms of people telling me what I have to talk about in class. I actually yeah. sometimes sit mm-hmm. back and I'm like I'm kind of like, wow, this is amazing that I can sit here and talk about some of these subjects I would never get away with, you know, back in New York, like at Columbia, where we where we were at for grad school, I just couldn't. You know, it would have been this very structured curriculum that that fit into the wider political landscape and so forth. And so that's well, kind of a nice benefit, the... you know. If you can afraid, afford to do teaching as a public service as opposed to a career, <laughs> then uh, it, it's quite nice for the. It's a much better lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you're talking about the core curriculum, and what I meant was, I can't you 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 can't fit what Steve and I are talking about into the, the core curriculum. Like at, uh, yeah. at the, uh, the the new school, uh, they uh, I wanted to teach about money and banking, and they uh, they really didn't want that. It was uh, the left wingers. Uh, it was Hubrunner who didn't want money and banking. They said that uh, he said I was a critic of banking, uh, not uh, <laughs> supporting it. Uh, and again, he didn't want me to talk about debt. So uh, the core curriculum uh, is now is even worse. Now, as I said, there's no history of economic thought. In the core curriculum, there's no economic history in the curriculum. You yeah, there's can no history in the sciences either, which is really disturbing. Economic history, yeah, the, the lack of history. I, I feel like that's a huge problem in innovation too. Is that people don't have time to go back and study in the sciences how people are arrived at the various ideas that are popular, and and how much debate really persisted throughout the last few centuries. Right, a lot of the things people take for granted, you know, the equations they learned, they were fought tooth and nail over and there's still a lot of wiggle room that remains in some of those fundamental sciences but no one would ever have the time to go back and check yep. it out and that, that's a bit tragic yep yeah well, it's probably it's worse than economics in that sense i mean i remember being at the university of new south wales in 1987 88 i think it was and the economic historians were so sick of how they were being treated by the economics staff but because what would happen was they were forever having their courses chopped off and replaced by a course in econometrics, some particular application of econometrics. So they made an arrangement to move to the arts faculty. <laughs> and there was, I remember the meeting quite vividly, they were pleading to be allowed to leave to go to the arts faculty. And the economics would not let them do that. They don't want to call that economics in the arts faculty. They were offended by it. And, of course, ultimately they shut down the economic history unit. So I used to teach economic... I used to teach history of economic thought uh, and his and Marxian economics, and they were both also shut down. So all the all the contemplative stuff disappeared. And the irony is now that neoclassical economists, like, and I'm thinking specifically people I know at Cambridge University, have no idea even if their own history, let alone the history of the institution they're at, let alone the history of the discipline. And that, that ignorance is where a huge amount of stupidity comes from in how economics develops further. Well, the irony there is that it's the uh, it's the orthodox economics that should be in the arts faculty as part of yeah. the science fiction uh, of the literature. No, 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 religion, religion. <laughs> okay. I mean, I've got I've got to get to make. Did, you, you enjoyed that paper I sent you a couple of days yes, ago. Yeah, that was a great paper, David Graeber. Yeah. Okay, look, I, I'll I'll give you this. This is an idea of what it's like. Give me a second. I'm going to find something in text and I'll read it out to you. Because in 2000, the you know change of the millennia, the 
the leading, the most influential journal, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, that's ranked number one out of the University of Chicago, yeah, commissioned naturally. a number of economists to write, naturally, to, to write a survey of you know where economics was and what's been the progress in the last century and what can happen again. And a guy is actually a nice bloke. I met him ultimately, called Ed Lazare, who became the um, he became the chief economic advisor to, to Bush. So he was chief economic advisor president oh, during the financial crisis. Okay, okay, and he wrote a paper called "Economic Imperialism," and it wasn't a criticism. He's saying the economics should be imperialistic because it's the only social science. Well, then you know, pride cometh before the fall because the financial crisis occurred. And when I caught up with him in two thousand and nine, he said to me, and it was a private conversation, but he's dead now, so I can repeat it. He said, uh, "I don't know why they appointed me." Chief economic advisor, I'm a labor economist. I don't know anything about macroeconomics. So I'll find that quote. This will give you an idea of the ideology in economics. Well, while you're looking, if uh, if modern uh, economics uh, mainstream was correct, civilization never could have taken off. Imagine if there would have been a Milton Friedman uh, or Chicago uh, boy going back to uh, Hammurabi, going back to the Bronze Age, uh, and said, "No, no, you can't write, cancel, uh, you cannot cancel the debts uh, because yeah. that's uh, disturbs things. You have to let everybody uh, collect the debts. You'd have the whole country living in poverty." is the uh, biblical prophets uh, described uh, what would happen if you didn't uh, have the mosaic uh, jubilee year of uh, uh, and, debt cancellation. And again, as Mark, Michael's the expert here, but a huge part of the struggles we, we know read about the great men of history, the Caesars versus the Ptolemies and so on, it was all, uh, you know, Caesar was, trust me if I'm wrong here, mate, but Caesar was in favor of paying, reducing the debt. Yes. And he was knocked off by the anti, uh, the the, the, the Victorian class, whatever they're called, you'd yep. never get into the darks. They, they didn't want to abolish the debt. So huge yes. parts of the struggles throughout history have been debtors versus creditors, and societies work best when the debtors have won. Well, they feared he was canceling the debts, and in fact, the only debts that he canceled were the debts owed by the rich people. The rich people, uh, the the financial sector is all for canceling the debts that it owes, mm. but not the debts that are owed to it. Uh, and that was one of uh, uh, Caesar's failings. And if you look at the, uh, there were a lot of Roman debt cancellations, canceling back taxes, and uh, they were almost entirely, it was the large landowners and the large creditors that benefited, not uh, uh, the indebted uh, population that had yeah. already lost its land through debt foreclosure. So, if we large... Read this, oh, go ahead. No, yeah. no, go ahead. Oh, can I read this thing? This will yeah. give you an idea of what economics is like. You guys were lucky not to do economics. This is the nature of economic thinking. This is Ed Lazare, 2000, paper called Economic Imperialism. Economics has been successful because, above all, economics is a science. The discipline emphasizes rational behavior, maximization, trade-off and substitutions, and insists on models that result in equilibrium. Economists are pushed further to inquire because they understand the concept of efficiency. Inefficient equilibria beg for explanation and suggest there may be gaps in the underlying models that created them, etc., etc. That's why I rewrote it at the end. And that's the first. There's actually two paragraphs like that. I say, economics are being successful because, above all, economics is a cult. Its dominant sect emphasizes rational behavior, maximization, trade-offs and substitution, and insists on models that result in equilibrium, thus insulating itself from the developments of 20th century sciences. 
Economists push farther into relevance because they're obsessed with the concept of efficiency. Inefficient equilibria beg for dynamics and evolutionary explanations and suggest there may be gaps in the brain wiring of economists who do not, not understand this. So this is the world we've lived in, yeah? and they think they're being scientific, and their definition of science should make a real scientist puke. Models that result in equilibrium? Huh? Which century are you from? But that's the mindset inside economics. Yes, and the same in international trade theory. All of the trade yeah. theory, uh, the Nobel Prize to Samuelson is that trade theory makes everybody, uh, all the proportions equal between capital and labor, and it's just the opposite. If you have free trade, you polarize the economy, uh, which is what the Americans realized when they decided to uh, have a protectionist uh, policy that is what made them uh, get so rich between the Civil War and World War I. So uh, you're, you're right. It's the, uh, the economy is in inherently polarizing and disequilibrium. But, you know, what's equilibrium? When, a, when an economics professor fall, trips and falls on his face flat on the floor, that's equilibrium. You know, I mean, when a society collapses, that's equilibrium. You know, what, what does equilibrium mean? Yeah. Well, what it means is they haven't got, they haven't been able to develop evolutionary thinking. Yes. And they suppress it because for an equilibrium, there's no point evolving any further. So ah, this idea there, of equilibrium, yeah. which they think is scientific, has locked them off from all the developments from Lorenz on in complex systems and chaos theory and so on. And that's, that's why you will not get progress. They've locked themselves into a dead end. Incredibly complicated not complex mathematics is what they do. Well, you, uh, that's because if you talk about evolution, uh, you're talking about the economy as a system with feedback. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, all, yeah. all of the uh, mainstream economics is what they call partial equilibrium. You can have just change one or two variables and the whole context remains unchanged. But any kind of evolution, any kind of a system, there's feedback that continually transforms self-transforms the system. That's why Marx wrote at the very beginning of capital, he wants to look at the laws of motion of capitalism. Well, economy yeah. says, we don't want any motion. We don't want anything to change. We're in, the, we're in the ruling class right now, and we don't want to change it. We don't want to look at any law of motion that's going to reform and revolutionize society and take away what we've grabbed. I wonder about... Oh, in, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I wanted to pivot a little bit Back to, so I'm hearing I'm hearing revolution from Michael and collapse from Steve, and I want to be able to imagine what comes after that. Are these changes things that can be implemented at the constitutional level if there is a new state, say that appears? Or what what sort of reconstruction ideas could go into a better state in the future? Like after the Mad Max period? Yeah, after the Mad Max period. So, okay, period. we have Mad Max. What happens? Somebody rises from the ashes and is like, let's write a new document. Well, let's, yeah, let's assume that the neo-feudalistic financial capitalism is a dead end and it inevitably fails in whatever way that it does. What, what, what should we expect, you know, as the penners of a new constitution? Uh, is this something that can be fixed at the outset? Well, uh, that's what you're having in the whole international economy. That's what the BRICS Plus is all about. The world is polarizing between the, the garden and the jungle. Uh, you have the whole uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the whole China, Russia, the whole uh, global majority is uh, realizing that uh, what they call de-dollarization 
isn't simply not using the dollar, it's creating a new kind of an alternative to the International Monetary Fund, an alternative to the World Bank, an entirely new system of international relations. Multipolarity uh, is uh, what they're talking about. So you're seeing that. You're not seeing that. in uh, The revolution is not occurring uh, in the West. You have the counter-revolution here. The revolution is now in Eurasia. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where the revolution is, and uh, uh, you're going to see uh, the China-type economy, mixed economies, are going to uh, take off because that's where the industrialization is, the trade, the research, the rising living standards. You're going to have the Eurasia and the global south unifying into uh, exactly where industrial capitalism seemed to be going in the 19th century, and you'll have uh, the United States and Europe in in the post-industrial society, meaning a lapse back into neo-feudalism. Uh, so uh, until finally, you know, presumably, uh, the garden is going to decide uh, to let the jungle in and to uh, have the mixed economy that uh, the classical economics is expected all along, but which you're only finding in Eurasia now. And they call it socialism. That's the optimistic view. <laughs> Sorry, so I, because I'm working in climate change and I'm reading what the climate scientists are talking about and reading what economists are bullshitting about, I expect a total breakdown of society. And it'll be a question of which societies survive through their whole process. It's not going to be like a global collapse, just like climate change is not going to be an instantaneous thing everywhere. Uh, it, it, it's, it's going to be something where some societies can cope and others don't depending on the changes we face. We're already seeing, you know, absolutely crazy weather uh, in the last three years, getting more crazy every year. You know that last this month, October, October last month rather, was 1.8 degrees above the pre-industrial average. We're talking about saying below 1.5. We've had three months in a row we're above 1.5, quite substantially. And so according to economists, that'll have a trivial impact upon the economy. But also according to economists, and this is a, there's a survey by two, uh, I, I don't know the hack, I think there might be uh, commercial researchers, Howard and Sylvan, S-Y-L-V-A-N, did a survey in 2021, getting the consensus of economists on climate change. And they predicted that seven degrees of warming by, in two centuries time, a trajectory towards that, so seven degrees by 2220, would reduce global GDP by 20% compared to what it would have been in the absence of global warming. And that would mean that rather than being 21 times the size of today's economy, it'll only be 17 times the growth. So the actual impact on the rate of economic growth was a reduction in the annual rate of economic growth of 0.02%, which is one-fifth of the accuracy with which economists can currently measure real change in GDP over time. So in other words, trivial. You know, they read the science papers, and there's a paper saying uh, in 2021, I've got to, I'll find it if necessary on my computer, what level of temperature increase over the pre-existing level caused the previous six mass extinctions? And the answer is 5.2 degrees. So a 5.2 degree increase in temperature over the pre previous level triggers the last six major mass extinctions where 85% or more of species went extinct. Okay. So economists think you can go two degrees higher than that and have a small direction in the rate of growth of rate of economic growth. That's how ignorant they are. But the trouble is politicians don't know just how ridiculous their work is. They think this is based on scientific research. 
they don't read the scientists, they read the economists instead. And so we're blindly walking into this catastrophe. That's why we've done nothing about global warming. So what I expect is, and you also got politicians in charge who are narcissists. They're not, they're not chosen for their skills or their decision-making prowess. They're idiots. Okay? So they're going to make the wrong decisions anyway in response to all this. So I just see a period of massive chaos. Maybe a couple of societies will have a chance of surviving. China is one, though China has a problem in that it doesn't produce all its own food, mm-hmm. which is a major issue. Because if you're not, you can't feed your population, you can't hold it together. So there's a minority of countries which are food self-sufficient right now, major exporters, including America as it happens, but I can't see America holding together. Uh, so the small ones that don't have America's weapons problem might have a chance of survival. And then it's a question of what do we do to respond? Will there be massive geoengineering attempts given what productive capacity we have in that situation? I think there will be. I think you'll see chaos in temperature levels if you actually get successful geoengineering. Um, So I see a horrific, if we're lucky, 50 years, if we're unlucky, 500, then out of that you might get a civilization that uh, develops. But my fear there is we're going to get a civilization that is anti-technology. And you'd end up with a religious, you know, and seeing technology as the cause of the chaos we're about to go through. When in my opinion, and from my reading of the literature, the blame lies with the economists who encourage us to continue growing when the engineers, and engineers wrote the limits to growth, not not hippies, uh, engineers 50 years ago were saying we have to taper, we have to reduce our rate of growth, we have to stabilise population, have to stabilise our energy load. If we'd followed the engineers, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. But the engineers will most likely get the blame and you're likely to get an anti technological society coming out of that so i think we're going to be back uh wearing you know men wearing dresses telling us what to do and maybe they might, they might be have a they might have a, a uh, if they're lucky they might have uh 500 million people listening to them because the other seven and a half billion aren't going to make it well, well the economists are really just hired uh, uh hired guns uh to promote this uh i was working at the hudson institute in the 1970s and uh one of the programs we had was na- a national security study of global warming uh that was uh run by the caa the caa expect expected everything that you've talked about uh steve and they said and this mm-hmm. is america's interest because we're a food surplus country and this will a uh, global warming will wreck the rest of the world and increase our power we're all for it uh we're going to put all of our strength behind uh the uh, the the oil industry and one of the byproducts of that was uh, erda the energy research development organization said uh, we've got to develop the tar sands in canada that's the most polluting source of energy in the world we've got to speed up global warming to speed up america domination this is what the CIA was believing and telling and hiring economists uh, uh to produce they didn't circulate my study uh, or the you know the internal studies for national security but they they hired your economists uh, to be the public relations people for all of this so they knew it and they uh, it was the United States that is pushing the the idea of global warming thinking it will benefit because of its control of the oil industry. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm saying that as being part of it, but economists played their own role. Nordhaus destroyed the yes, limits to growth. They play their role without yes. understanding. Yeah, okay. Um, yes. But, and you did have some people in the oil industry who were saying this is going to be catastrophic over the long term. Yes. So, yeah, but, but in terms of the capacity of Americans to shoot themselves in the foot, I'm never going to argue against it. <laughs> okay. There's there's been an interesting push for especially economic zones where people are seeing that this is starting to collapse. And I think that they're looking to history and they're saying, okay, well, one of the greatest vessels for change is the ability to go to a place where rules have not been set up yet, where things are not yet calcified into the old systems and to begin again. And so I know people that are part of various projects, oftentimes they're libertarian projects. I know that Peter Thiel's in the background talking about, you know, like sea civilizations. And that to me feels like on on one hand, I think it's destined to fail. But on the other hand, I also look at it as being the only possible way to start to seed something that can run and grow in parallel to the systems that we have. Because if you're right, and if it does just shake itself apart, that's the worst possible outcome. Like if you, I always, I always use the same example. If you build a new bridge, like there was the Bay Bridge in San Francisco needed to be rebuilt. They didn't well, wait well, <laughs> for the bridge to fall and then build a different bridge. They were they built the new span directly next to it. And when the span was built and tested, they redirected traffic to it and took apart the old one. And so are special economic zones a possible way to rebuild the span while the other one is busy collapsing? Or is that just a pipe? No, dream? no. no. Pipe Most, because you, 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 need, you need a climate that supports a sedentary civilization. And <laughs> we're generating one that doesn't support a sedentary civilization. Now, this is not like London at the moment uh, it didn't have as much damage as they thought it would cause, but the Storm Sea Run was actually a, a Category 3 cyclone went through London. Now, they're lucky about the way that the storm you know, damage was distributed. London didn't get totally destroyed or anything like it. It's fairly minor, apparently, in London. Pretty damn dramatic on the coast of Brittany. Uh, but if those things, those the storm comes through like that, uh, you know, if you happen to be in the region where you're trying to build your bridge and then you get a cyclone like that or a period of high temperature that destroys the grain or hailstones that destroy your greenhouse, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to have to persuade for it on a, an incredible industrial scale to be in any sense immune to that. And you're going to need people, you're going to need skilled people who are going to be willing to work for you when the fact that you have money is no longer relevant. So that to me, you know, you'll only do it if you have a real uh, egalitarian survivalist society. And what I've been seeing so far isn't egalitarian. Also, well, most an ideologically of the great fortunes have been one. made in economic collapse. It's a lot quicker to make a fortune in economic collapse than in a non-economic collapse. And you can, uh, there, I can guarantee you, there are a lot of uh, uh, financial speculators looking at what Steve's writing and uh, saying, "Okay, there's going to be uh, a crisis, uh, environmental crisis. How can we make money off this?" That's not going to happen. It just, it's, it's too crazy, too crazy. I wonder if you have been exposed at all to what's called the Doomer Optimist community. No, I've probably not. I know quite a few communities in the area, but so tell me about Doomer Optimists. 
Doomer optimists are basically people that I I would bet agree with you largely on the course of human events and the way that the industrial system is going to collapse. And in the shadow of the collapsing megalodon, they're basically scavenging parts of it in order to be able to build family and community-based systems that are going to be able to weather the collapse and be sufficiently robust to operate in the absence of money, like you say. Because you're exactly right. If money disappears, the thing that you need is an ideological commitment to the system that you're building. And it seems like this is the time for the emergence of these kinds of groups because lots of people are realizing that capitalism can't keep going the way that it's going. I think everybody's very pessimistic about reform And so the only possible alternative is to build these systems. And a lot of them are uh, farm-based. A lot of them are buying up properties in, you know, Ecuador and Costa Rica and in places where they're going to be largely protected against giant temperature increases. Because from everything that we've learned in talking to climate scientists, the greatest temperature increases are going to happen away from the equator. So the equator is going to stay about the same. And so if you move to the tropics, then the impacts will be significantly less. And a lot of these people are moving to Central America. There's also the, the, the massive changes in climate zones that might happen. Like 5,000 years ago, the Sahara was a green paradise. And so if you have climate change and Europe becomes inhospitable, covered with an ice sheet, it might be that northern Africa suddenly becomes the paradise in the garden. And so you do have to see a massive shift of people, but it's not that the, the species goes extinct. And the people who will flourish in that condition, by necessity, will have to be the ones that, that embrace technology, right? Because how could, you, how could you not embrace technology and survive that? If what the problem you have is scale. So, like, I agree that that is more likely to be a survivable system, but it has to be what Nate Hagen's, I'm presuming you know Nate Hagen's, uh, Nate calls the great simplification. Because mm-hmm. you, you're not going to have computer ships, you know, uh, in that world. You may have to go back to, you know, resistor and, you know, tra- you know valve-based computers, mm. um, something you can manufacture on a small scale um, because the extent to which we have, you know, the scale of manufacturing is beyond most people's comprehension today. Uh, you know, the one company that makes the machines that make the chips, advanced chips, which is a Dutch company, uh, I think costs $450 million per machine. And there's only only one company making it. Uh, they won't have a market to make those machines if you're down to a population of, you know, scattered populations of between 500,000 and 50 million surviving in, in largely around the equator, ironically, I think you're quite right about that. Uh, so they're going to have to be technological, but it's going to have to be a bit like if you know the old movie MacIver. Uh, it's survival technology. It's not uh, high-scale industrial technology. I hope something like that happens because the thing that I fear most about what we're going through is the loss of knowledge. As much as we've criticised, you know, capitalism uh, in, in this conversation and human. And the amount we know about the universe, and you guys are in a better position to be aware of that than we are, the amount we know about the universe is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think we might lose all that and go back to a primitive level of knowledge and actually an anti-technology world. I think it'd be a greater tragedy than the loss of people we're going to face, frankly. So I want to find ways to keep that technological dream alive 
And as you say, you're going to have to be technological to survive in that world anyway. Uh, it would be low-scale technology, not, not high-scale. From yeah. everyone that I've talked to, I think that the answer is to start carving things into stone. As to what? Is to start carving instructions into stone, because stone will survive the cataclysm. <laughs> Even yeah, if I mean, I've got one of one, one of my one of my colleagues who I, I've I've never got around to writing a third edition of Debunking Economic, but he wants to publish that on parchment, so that it will not decay. <laughs> okay? And like I think that's a great idea. I did. I had to change my direction from writing a third edition of debunking economics to attacking the idiot economists who've done the work on climate change because, again, it's raising a warning before a crisis, which is what I did before the financial crisis in 2008. You know, I'd abandoned everything to rave, write blog posts about the coming financial crisis. Uh, this is the coming ecological crisis. And the trouble is you could even bad economic uh, management could reverse the damage that could minimise the damage of a financial crisis, but there's nothing that can minimise the damage we're going to do to the productive capacity of human civilization by the degree of climate change we're generating right now. And by the time we realise that, it's going to be too late to do something on a global scale. So it comes down to local initiatives. Some countries may be able to do it. The small, pretty authoritarian countries like Thailand is a possibility, cohesive. Um, Maybe China, parts of China, though I worry about the food production issues there. Um, but yeah, your little communities may be a bit like the monasteries of the Dark Ages, keeping knowledge alive while the rest turns into a primitive world. Mm. Baked, yeah, I didn't. Uh, I don't think I quite pyramid or how to keep your books going. Baked uh, ceramic <laughs> tiles, ceramic tiles uh, <laughs> on a, a wall in a pyramid. I'll give it a try. So I, I didn't quite get an answer to my question about what a new state that was more effective and had safeguards against these kind of corruptions would look like. Is that something that can actually be established at the constitutional level? Well, if you realize that economies tend towards a, a financial uh, polarization and a, a debt crisis, then you need a regular debt cancellation. You had that for thousands of years in the ancient Near East. That's why I wrote uh, and forgive them their debts. So yes, it's been done before. But if you realize that the uh, ten tendency of economies is to polarize not uh, for disequilibrium, not equilibrium, then you have policies that are going to deal with this inevitability of polarization and disequilibrium. So you, you need uh, a, a different mathematical basis of economics than you have uh, uh, today. And if you have the right uh, diagnosis, then you have the remedy that's indicated by it. I think you also have to have a... Humanity has to respect life, and we haven't, and we're destroying life. When this is this, My overall perspective is that we, we have to see our role as being in custodians of life, and that means reserving a large part of the planet for non-humans. Uh, E.O. Wilson was talking about the 50% rule that half the planet should be, ex humans should be excluded from half the planet. I actually think that's excessive. I think it should be 80% of the planet should be excluded from humans. And we we do what we can in the 20%. But I'll, we, we know this is the only this is the only planet we know of in the solar system, in the universe that supports life. And, you know, with what we know now in terms of what are the possibility for habitable worlds elsewhere, it's extremely rare. It may be so rare that we're the only, we could be the only one. 
we might be the, we, we might be another one which goes through this whole process of uh, you know a takeoff driven by fossil fuels global warming and collapse again maybe this is the great filter we face in the future mm-hmm. uh, but if we're going to survive we have to be aware that life is fragile uh, and and we have to see ourselves if we are the intelligent species we have to prevent its breakdown the long-term thing as you'd both know is the sun will become a red giant and in its evolution towards that in about a less than a billion years its own the energy we get from the sun will destroy the oxygen levels on the planet I mean, I see that in some sense as the main project of space exploration, whether people realize it or not, you know, why are we interested in the moon? Because it'll make a great industrial outpost for establishing longer range space flight. And even our search for life, it's like really motivated by a search for habitable regions of of the cosmos that we can explore and potentially set up a backup hard drive for ourselves here. And I think we have to do that. Yeah, I agree. And that's like, I'm a, I'm a Musk fan on that front because if you started SpaceX, and uh, whether or not the only way it could survive on Mars is by having a highly technological society mm. and an egalitarian one as well. So, you know, whether we get there, I think, you know, I don't think the timing is good. I think we're going to fail on that one. But you have to ultimately see our role as being able to maintain life and intelligent life. And that's what we should, that should be first and foremost what humans do. Everything else should be secondary, it should just be driven by that objective. And the trouble is that we are so caught up in our own squabbles and our own attempt to see everything as if there's nothing other than our species on the planet, that we're ending up destroying our capacity to survive on this planet ourselves. I feel like it's very hard for the average person to care about these large issues of species diversification and so forth when they feel like they have a boot on their neck. Like they feel like they don't have control over their governments. They feel like they don't have control over the financial institutions. They need to invest in these financial institutions in order to fight inflation to begin with. And so there's just like a real powerlessness. I mean, the, the, the best thing you can do to, to clean up the planet is to make poor people not poor, right? You know, we know that people who are not completely under the thumb of privation, like they're able to actually take care. That's something they start to care about all of a sudden. And so in some yeah. sense, it seems like the path to a more sustainable ecology is by making people less poor. Yeah, having an egalitarian. I mean, for example, I... Uh, there's a particular an Italian guy who's in charge of attempting to design what would be the colonies on Mars. And I saw him being interviewed about this. It's a YouTube channel, obviously. And he was asked about the social structure. He said it has to be egalitarian. You can't have somebody on Mars having 10 or 100 times the, the space that the average person does. Engineering alone rules it out. And you want to have a society which regards its every person as as contributing together it, it has to be egalitarian it has to be shared and in the long run that's if we're going to have a potential survival as a species we have to extend that the wall of life and that's we we've nowhere near thinking in that way as a species at the moment and what worries me is that we won't get there anyway that you'll end up with the you know the religious nutcases taking over again in the aftermath to an industrial collapse caused by climate change, which they'll blame on technology rather than seeing technology as the potential solution to avoid that world. Mm. Well, interestingly enough, uh, as Michael's shown in, in his writing, that the more sustainable economies of, say, the Sumerians were headed by religious nut jobs. That's quite interesting because they, they, <laughs> they, in some sense, had a responsibility to some cosmic significance that was 
beyond the scope of individual uh, sequestering of wealth. And so I wonder if there isn't something useful about that, I, that, that way of looking at the world. Well, all those low uh, surplus economies were, if not egalitarian, they had checks on egotism. They had checks against the accumulation of wealth. If somebody could get, you, you'd let people get wealthy, but you'd have to bury the wealth with them. It wouldn't be uh, transmitted to the family to become a her hereditary uh, wealth. And when people, there'd be funerals and uh, uh, you'd have uh, wealthy people uh, buried with all of their jewelry. But then uh, when the funeral is over, you'd distribute the jewelry all through the people. There are many, uh, the anthropology uh, of, uh, shows that all of these societies had checks on this uh, uh, and balances. Of course, some people, you're going to have egotism, you're going to have people wanting to get rich, but you're also going to have society <clears throat> protecting itself against this. And uh, uh, you, if, if you're rich, you have a big feast. And uh, you give a, you provide food for everybody, and and you get social, you get status by being generous, not by being selfish. Mm. Uh, not where uh, University of Chicago graduates would do well. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I feel I feel like we have covered a lot of ground. We've done three three hours here, and one thing I wanted to ask you guys before you left was who we should be talking to to expand our perspectives on these issues. Who are who are people that you think are are really uh, worth talking to in order to make this a, an even bigger uh, conversation. Uh, I think you should talk to Steve Keen. <laughs> I was afraid you'd say that. Michael Hudson. Um, we definitely will more. It, it, sure. I mean, I mean, I, it, it's it's a it's a dilemma. But there there are certainly you know, people like E.O. Wilson, who's unfortunately died. Um, people like uh, I think Jürgen Randers, who was the one, one of the two surviving members of the Limits to Growth Study, Dennis Meadows, who's still alive and kicking. Um, people working in system dynamics. Mike Radziki would be embarrassed if I mention him here, but he's got the he's the leading person in developing a capacity to think in a systemic way. Uh, and that's our failure, our failure to think about the overall system. Um, so there are a range of people out there, but I've, I've lost touch in a lot of ways because I've been forced to fight neoclassical economists so much I've destroyed my own brain capacity in taking on those bloody idiots. And because you're fighting myths all the time, I'm not trying to track down people who are providing new ways of thinking. So I'm unfortunately, because I spend, because I have to fight that battle, I've lost touch with the people who are the uh, inspirational thinkers about the future. Mm. Mike, Michael, are you in the same boat? Uh, yes. I can't think of, uh, there's no, uh, you really need, a new science, uh, 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 not economics, but something that does talk about the whole world as a system. And uh, if you talk about the world as a system, you'll uh, realize just what Steve's talking about uh, with his global warming. Uh, you, and uh, this is how uh, economics began in the United States. And already in the nineteen in the eighteen forties, you were talking about this <clears throat> and uh, the uh, environmental overhead and how that had to be uh, included in the national statistics. And uh, the free traders all opposed this. Uh, so there's always been this opposition between. Between reality, uh, reality people who looked at the system and <clears throat> people who said, don't look at the system, uh, let's have a cover story. Uh, and there just are not many people <laughs> doing what Steve and, and I are 
uh, talking about today because they're not a discipline. What do we call ourselves? Do we call it? Uh, I call myself an archaeologist. I used to call myself a futurist when I worked with uh, Herman Kahn and Alvin Toffler and these people. But uh, <coughs> maybe you should call us futurists, uh, mm. uh, uh, but not economists. What do we call it? I don't know. We have uh, Kate uh, Kate Rayworth coming in a couple of weeks. Good. Which good, yeah, yeah. I think that that's going to be interesting. Uh, we're also trying to get Nate Hagens, but he uh, yeah, we met with him last week. We, 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 we don't have week. a podcast on the books yet, so so if you see him, put in a good Sorry? word for us. Yeah, we'll do. We'll do. Nate and I are in charge fairly regularly. Excellent. So I'll do that. Okay. Yeah, thank you, gentlemen. This has been illuminating and. I feel like I get smarter every time I talk to either one of you. So I've learned so much. And I feel like I get smarter when I talk to both of you at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Exponentially. <laughs> and I've got to, I still haven't any promoting for the, the function in Austin. I've got to do that. I've just been overwhelmed. So I've got your uh, things to help promote it. But, um, you know, kick me in the backside occasionally to get me to do something because I've just got too much work on. Definitely. We will, uh, we're, we're actually taking a little break for a week, and so we'll have some more bandwidth to think about that, and so we'll send you some notes. Beauty. Okay, thanks again for the conversation. Good to see you, Michael. Yep. Hi to Grace. Thank you both so much Thank for you. coming. Thank you. All right, bye, everybody. Bye,